It's Tuesday, August 10th, 2021, and this is the Talk Film Society podcast. I am your host, Marcelo Pico, editor-in-chief of Talk Film Society, I'm here to introduce yet another episode of the show in which I talk with a guest about their top 25 films of all time. Uh, this time we have Jacob DeNoble from the podcast Monsters Never Die uh, on the Talk Film Society Podcast Network. Uh, he and I sat down for a few hours and talked about his favorite films of all time um, as part of the TFS 100 campaign we're doing uh, over at Talk Film Society. You can go to talkfilmsociety.com slash TFS100, TFS100, uh, to vote in our poll uh, to tell us your top 25 of all time. Uh, tell us your top 25 and we'll count up these ballots. We'll put in the numbers. We'll you know do whatever formula we have to do to figure out our overall top 100 list um yeah we're doing that for the next few weeks months Uh, originally it was uh set to end in august but hey i took a month off uh from releasing these episodes for personal reasons but now i'm back i've got more guests lined up for this series Uh, i've got more episodes uh for the talk film society podcast i have recorded and i'm planning to record so uh stay tuned for these uh, episodes out weekly um, uh, the top 25 lists and also just general movie chat um, I've already recorded one episode uh, with Matt Curion and Manish Mathor about the Suicide Squad which will be out in the next few days fingers crossed um, but let's talk about this uh, so yes we went long this is one of the longer episodes um, covering uh, a guest's top 25 of all time long in a good way because jacob is great to talk to um i did have to cut out about 20 minutes of fast and furious talk uh for all of our sakes um i, I do hope uh, i mean I, I think i'll release that part on its own uh maybe on patreon uh, or maybe i'll talk jacob into doing a full fast and furious series because he and i have opinions um, but I decided to cut a lot of that out uh, just for the sake of this, uh, making this as short and still as good as possible. So there you go. Um, and with that, oh, let me, uh, this is something I'm going to do more and more often. I've, I've tried to do it before, but here up top, I'll read out Jacob's uh, top 25. Um, and then we'll get into the conversation that he and I have. Uh, maybe, but before that, though. Let me just say, hey, speaking of Patreon, patreon.com slash talkfilmsociety. Go there to support us, get bonus episodes of podcasts. Um, and also, hey, just go to talkfilmsociety.com itself, the hub. Uh, listen to our podcasts. Uh, we have some uh, new writing over there right now. Um, yeah, that'll do it. So you can follow me on TikTok. I'm, I'm doing pretty well on there. Uh, if, if you follow me on Twitter and Instagram, then uh, it would be it'd be really easy to find me on, on TikTok because they're all the same handle at Marcelo J Pico. All right, I think that that that's enough that's enough plugs for 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 me. Now let me read out this top twenty five list um, of Jacobs. Uh, this is unranked. Uh, this is actually yeah. I'm looking at the list now um, uh, at random. 
Uh, actually, let me sort this by date. Okay, so these are the top 25 by Jacob um, chronologically, unranked um, in terms of like you know best, uh, worst, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in the show. Uh, but here's the list, real quick. Uh, Frankenstein from 1931, Top Hats from 1935, Modern Times from 1936, Hell is a Poppin' from 1941, Godzilla from 1954, The Umbrellas of a Cherbourg from 1964, Playtime from 1967, Nashville from 1975, The Evil Dead from 1981, Streets of Fire from 1984, Gremlins from 1984, Break Into Electric Boogaloo from 1984, Robocop from 1987, Do the Right Thing from 1989, Quiz Show from 1994, The Matrix from 1999, The Iron Giant from 1999, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring from 2001, Down with Love from 2003, Spider-Man 2 from 2004, A Serious Man from 2009, Fast Five from 2011, Crimson Peak from 2015, Lemonade from 2016, and at the Lonely Island presents the unauthorized Bash Brothers experience from 2019. So there's the list I'm going to go over with Jacob here. Uh, so sit back, relax, uh, cut out a few hours from your day, or listen to this as you do your errands or your work. Uh, but yes, enjoy this great conversation that Jacob and I had discussing his top 25 films of all time. So, first question right off the bat, Jacob. Uh, how hard was it to make a top 25 of all time for you? Uh, surprisingly easy. Um, yeah. But part of that is also this list will have changed within two months. Yeah, ask Jacob another time. There are going to be some, there are going to be a lot of ones that keep showing up, but there's going to be a lot of them that it was just kind of a, on a whim. You know, these. this is my top 25 as of this exact moment in my life. Yeah, a few days ago, you sent me the list, and then wasn't it just like a day or two ago, you sent me an updated list? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did not get a chance to look at the old list, because I opened up the new list and, and made my notes for it today, but what what, mm-hmm. what had changed between those those like few days? Um, so, honestly, it was I was setting up this list by going through Letterboxd. And um, some of them were just movies that I hadn't watched recently enough since I started tracking stuff on Letterboxd, uh-huh. um, but that I knew I would want on my list. Um, so those got added. Um, but if you want actual things that uh, Little Shop of Horrors got sadly bumped off the list, uh. um, as did uh, yeah, as did Raising Arizona. I think those are my two substitutions. Um, and Raising Arizona really only dropped off because I was like, I already have a Coen Brothers on here. Let's let's try and shake things up a little. Yeah. Because it, it got to 27 and winnowing it down from 27 w- was difficult. Yeah, that's that's what I've been finding out recently because um, this, this also is a thread going through all these episodes is that I have not made mine yet. I'm kind of in the process mm. of, of doing mine and I won't 
I, I, I won't really have to reveal mine until like the end of the series, which you know is is a is a benefit for me. Um, yeah. But uh, you'll be embarrassed that it's exactly the same as mine <laughs> because they're the twenty five greatest movies ever made. <laughs> I mean, that would be wild, but no. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I haven't seen uh, Bash Brothers, so but we'll we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I got mine down to like a top twenty nine, and then it got mm-hmm. hard for me. And then I'm like, oh yeah, oh I gotta cut some, and then also then a few, like uh, you know hours later I go, oh what about this movie? And, yeah, so it, it's I think it's I think it's like just just naming your your favorite movies like in a batch is always easy in easy uh, thing to do, but then once you have to like cultivated down to just a certain number i find like that's then mm-hmm. like a top 25 that should, should yeah. be easy right but no you gotta you gotta you gotta cut the ones you love sometimes um letterboxd made this a lot easier because i was able to just filter by my five star reviews and i am a generous five star i if a movie gets me amped it gets five stars for me but um so i was able to winnow down so these are all five star pictures in my eyes ah Okay, that's even more interesting to me, actually, <laughs> and, and, and and we'll talk about that as we go. Um, yeah. Okay, so you sent me the list, and this is mm-hmm. as I was doing, um, as I was writing notes down for it. I see that it was chronological, right? This is not a yes. a ranked, you know, list in terms of like, oh, this is my number one of all time, then two, three, four. No, you just we're doing chronological, right? Yes. Okay. Uh- there is a consistent number one. We can save what that is until we get to it if yeah. you want. Yeah, let's um, save that, yeah. But yeah, there, there's a consistent number one. Everything else is... There might be tiers to this, but everything else is kind of in flux. Gotcha, yeah. And for those who want to read along, who, who want to like you know look ahead and see what's on this list, it'll be on the episode page. Um, sure it'll be on the iTunes uh, description page for this episode um talk from society.com anyway it'll be there or look up uh, i'm sure this is also on your letterboxd right jacob I mean, yep. yeah, yeah and i've tagged the tfs oh yes yes tfs 100 T- yeah so tfs 100 dot 2021 yeah which i just tfs as i said for some reason <laughs> <laughs> listen it's it's confusing i get it but uh, i and this is actually the first time i mentioned that like in this is the f- fifth episode of this series and this is the first time uh, i've mentioned well you mentioned it the, the letterbox thing so yeah so folks if you're on letterboxd and you don't want to fill out that ballot that i've been you know uh, telling you the link of for the last few weeks uh, which is talkfilmsociety.com slash tfs100 you can just tag your top 25 list with that tag uh, tfs100 dot uh, 2021 right and uh, yeah that'll be much easier than just filling out the ballot um why don't we just start chronologically? Let's just do that, okay? Yeah, I would love that. Yes. So, first one, Frankenstein from 1931. What a what an interesting place to start, Jacob. You being the co-host of a monster uh, podcast series, um, Frankenstein. Uh, I mean, this is the earliest one on your list. Uh, mm-hmm. Would it be? Well, I, I I don't know. I'm not. I'm I'm sure you've talked about this on your show. I'm sure on the Frankenstein episode itself. But uh, was it like one of the first horror movies you saw? Like, uh, what's your connection with uh, you and Frankenstein? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, I, you know, it's not that I felt obligated to throw a classic monster movie on here because of Monsters Never Die, but it also is just genuinely one of my favorite movies. Um, I didn't come to Frankenstein until high school. Um, TCM did a... uh, 
uh, Rob Zombie used to host like TCM Underground or After Dark or some kind of thing. And uh, they played it at like 11 p.m. one Saturday night. And I remember for whatever reason, just like dragging one of my kitchen chairs like as close to the TV as possible for it. And just like sitting as close as I could for Frankenstein. And wow, I mean, it it just opens with a fucking banger because a guy just comes out and is like, yo, this is going to be fucking scary. And if you're too much of a little shit for it, leave <laughs> now. And it's like, yeah, okay, Frankenstein. I'm so ready for this. Um, but I mean, honestly, I think, you know, I think a lot of people will say that Bride of Frankenstein is the better film. And I think Bride of Frankenstein definitely has higher highs. I think it reaches more peaks. But I think for me, the thing that is going to be a recurring theme among my list is that the things that really excite me about movies are the rhythm and the structure of them. So a perfectly structured movie will do more for me than a movie that has heights and peaks but doesn't necessarily build to them in kind of a natural way and i think frankenstein is like a perfectly told story that builds in such a perfect way and by the time you're in that climax and the windmill scene you are just so invested and so in and it has what i would say is probably the only like real genuine like horrific moment of the universal monster canon where frankenstein throws the little girl into the lake oh yeah and that is done with such empathy and tragedy that it's both really unnerving, but also you feel sad for the monster at the same time. Um, yeah. That was actually a scene I had seen as a kid. Um, I was like eight years old. And I remember before school, there was some like documentary about the universal monsters on like PBS or something. And I was watching and I remember that clip, like scarring me in that moment. Wow. Yeah. It, it's, it's one I need to revisit. I saw it for the first time, maybe like six or seven years ago. Um, oh no, it might've been longer. No, actually I'm thinking of, uh, another universal monster because, okay, going through, uh, these first few chronologically on your list, some of these, um, like you mentioned, like they showed Frankenstein during like, um, I seem to remember that Rob Zombie T- TCM underground thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but these uh, these on your list, uh, Frankenstein, Top Hat, Modern Times, uh, and Godzilla, I think, well, not Top Hat, but the other ones, I'm sure the first time I saw those were on TCM, like when I was like uh, mm-hmm. in, in like in grade school. And yeah, yeah kind of like you just like, like, like setting up my seat in front of the TV, watching these like classic movies, especially Modern Times for me. Like that was like, mm-hmm. a, like a real... Like my mind just like was like, whoa, really? They did this back then? Like even like yeah. <laughs> it's like just it still holds up. So many you know decades later, modern times. Mm-hmm. When, when, uh, when was the first time you saw Modern Times? Uh, so for me, Modern Times, I don't know my initial watch of it, but I know my Charlie Chaplin introduction was The Gold Rush, and that was on uh, TCM. Yeah. yeah, and that just like awakened a, a, a new lust for silent comedy. Um, again, this was maybe around 16 when I was in high school. Um, my friend and I, we, we made a lot of films in school and entered them into the Carroll County film competition of which we were usually the only entrant. Uh, <laughs> so we, we ended up with the, the blue ribbon 4-H fair film entry like three years in a row because we were the only people who submitted anything. But we made our own silent movie called Threesomes of Plenty, 
um, where we were both um, guys with mustaches attending the one annual mustache convention, and we both fell in love with the same girl. And there's not a point to this. I'm just <laughs> Charlie Chaplin really, uh, re- really was stuck an influence. Out to me, but yeah, yeah. And Chaplin, you know, cool people now, you know, I think a lot of people will be like, oh, well, Buster Keaton is funnier and Harold Lloyd is, you know, he does more dangerous stuff. And Charlie Chaplin is kind of the like old fogey answer of like, who's your favorite silent comedian star? But honestly, it's that level of pathos and humanity that he brings to his characters that sticks with me. I am a big softy at heart, and so is Chaplin. And Chaplin doesn't make films just about the comedy. He makes films about society and about how we treat people. And the fact that his like most enduring character is a tramp. It is the lowest rung of person, and he's constantly being chased by police because he's stealing food to eat, and he's like falling in love. I think that that all builds to a, like, just this mythic character that I, I really love. And yeah, so I mean, I had to, I, I love Chaplin and I knew I wanted a Chaplin on here. And I think Modern Times coming at the kind of end of his silent cycle really encapsulates all that he does so well. And, you know, this is a movie that was made deep within the talkie era. Like this is, this comes after Frankenstein and Top Hat. But he's keeping silent comedy alive because there's something to say with it still. And I think that that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, talk about Top Hat because that's one I have not seen. I've seen clips of it for sure. But uh, yeah, uh, talk about uh, Top Hat. Yeah, so today I actually I did a triple feature of movies on my list just so I could be ready to, to talk about them with you. Um, and so Top Hat was one of them that I rewatched uh-huh. today. Um, this was another TCM find for me in high school. Um, I was I remember watching this, I guess, my senior year. And it is it is often you know cited as the best Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie. And I've seen maybe about six or seven of them. And I can't argue with that. Because there is such a genuine romance between the two of them. The dance numbers are all fantastic. And then... What really takes Top Hat like above everything else are all of the side characters. There's just this fantastic cast of people who are playing roles that they play in like every movie. Like, I don't know. What, one of the things I like about older movies is that there are people who just are stock characters and they like perfect that one specific role and then they'll just mix and match them and throw them into movies. So, like, it's Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. You know what you're going to get when you see them. It's Edward Everett Horton, who has a very distinct double take that he, like, perfected, where he, like, laughs and then slowly realizes that what you're saying is an insult to him, and he becomes hmm. stony-faced. Um, there's Eric Rhodes as Alberto Bedini, who just does a fantastic Italian accent that just constantly makes me think of that meme where it's it's not racist to do an Italian accent. Yeah. Um, and he's it's great. Uh, he's he's in love with Ginger Rogers. He's trying to marry her. He thinks that Fred Astaire has hurt her in some way. And he goes, for the woman, the kiss. For the man, the sword. And then he like tries to kill Fred Astaire. Um, it's just fucking great. Uh, the dance numbers are all great. The meet cute is something that's really, I don't know, novel for me in that it's Fred Astaire doing a tap dance number about how happy he is to be single. 
And Ginger Rogers is in the apartment below him and is just fucking annoyed by all the tap dancing that's going on above her. <laughs> Which, for a movie like this where, you know, the tap numbers do not take place necessarily with it, like, they take place within the reality of the film, but to kind of break the assumption that you have as a viewer that the tap dancing is more of an emotional expression and it's like oh no this guy is just tap dancing in his room and pissing off all of his neighbors i think that that's a delight um it's got great music it's got great dance numbers and one of the other things i think you're going to see on this list a lot is that one of the other things that i love in movies and one of the things that i think movies do better than anything else is showing bodies in motion I love yeah. to see a body in motion. And Fred Astaire and Charlie Chaplin are both figures who are doing their storytelling through their existence as a corporeal being. And that's really exciting for me. You know, at this point, I kind of want to jump around because, like, I do see a theme. Like you mentioned, there are similar movies on this list in terms of, like, mm-hmm. you know, dancing, bodies in motion. Why don't we go to Break in Two? <laughs> Yeah, Break Into Electric Boogaloo. If you only know this as a joke sequel title, fucking get out and watch Break Into Electric Boogaloo. It is pound for pound the most entertaining movie ever made. There is not a second of wasted space in here. The three main characters are named Turbo, Ozone, and Kelly. You do not have to have seen the first break-in, and honestly, it's probably better if you haven't, because it follows up None of the questions you would have from Breakin. I, I saw Breakin 2 first. Um, and it was years later that I went back and watched the first Breakin. And I realized that all of the things that I assumed that I missed in Breakin were never brought up. And then it answered a bunch of questions I didn't know I had. Um, but have you seen Breakin 2, Electric Boogaloo? I have not. I'm sh- I think I saw Breakin 1 in a theater. I'm trying to look that up now because, like, I have fuzzy memories of this. But no, I've never seen Breaking Two, and oh my god! I mean, it's 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 that thing where I just assume it's a bad movie because it's been you know the butt of jokes for you know decades, right? Breaking Two, uh, Electric Boogaloo, and that's bullshit because yeah, I I, I believe you, Jacob. I don't I don't think you're insane or just watch or putting Breaking Two on your top twenty five list. I want to see this movie because it's so fucking good. Okay, let me, uh, uh, let me ask you this. Did you come into it expecting something like, you know, this is going to be truly terrible. This is going to be like The Room or some bullshit like that, like with that. Because uh, you're not that person, Jacob. I'm asking this. I, I was going to say, I approach nothing with that. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to make it clear. Um, you're I, not that type of person who is going to approach something like that, like that. You. Yeah, no. I, yeah. There is not a single drip or ounce of irony in my pure-hearted love of Break Into Electric Boogaloo. My backpack in high school was a, like, plastic laminated... Somebody had, like, turned the album soundtrack of Break Into Electric Boogaloo into a bag. And I carried all of my books in that. Um, (laughs) There's a fucking scene where Turbo... They they pull from Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire has a famous dancing on the ceiling scene where he, you know, tap dances on the wall and on the ceiling and it's all done in a big rotating room. And Break Into Electric Boogaloo does that exact same thing. There's a breakdance scene where Turbo is trying to exp- express his love for this woman, and he's alone, and he's breakdancing in this room, and then he goes up the wall, and then he goes onto the ceiling. And watching that at, like, 16, a movie that had fairly seemed low budget, and I'm like, there's no cuts here. The- what the fuck is happening? How- that- they didn't build a rotating room for this, did they? 
And <laughs> Marcella, do you know where they got the rotating room? I'm going to take a wild guess and say A Nightmare on Elm Street. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> they, they borrowed the Nightmare on Elm Street rotating room. They redressed it for breakdancing and used it for Turbo's I'm in Love dance. But then what, like, what takes it from great to sublime is that you know, as an audience member, you're watching this dance number and you are, this is, again, similar to what I'm saying about the Fred Astaire. I love this kind of fourth wall breaking. You're assuming, oh, this is an expression of his emotions. He's not literally dancing on the ceiling, you know, this because that's not, you know, this movie has no fantastical elements so far. But then the girl he's in love with walks in the door and looks up and sees him on the ceiling and is like, whoa. <laughs> and then the next time you see them, they're dating. So the only assumption you can make is that that actually happened for real. (laughs) Break it to, this movie is fucking 90% musical numbers. Like, there's one scene, they have like a dialogue scene, a musical number, and then they cut back to the same characters having like the same conversation. And it's like they were just like, ah, shit, it's been six minutes and nobody has breakdanced. We fucking need to get something in there so people don't leave the theater. It's great. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Listen, I can't wait to see it. it, it I, I didn't know it was like that. Like, like just just uh, not. I was going to say front loaded. No, you said like a majority of this is musical numbers. I didn't realize it was that much of a you know, musical dance number uh, uh, of a a movie. Oh, and the fashion alone. Oh, my God. They got handcuff belts that they're, like, trading from person to person. There's a scene where they're just eating pizza with their pants unzipped. I I wish we could take an hour just to do a (laughs) moment-for-moment podcast about how great Break into Electric Boogaloo is. That's one that would never move from this list. You know, I mentioned (laughs) that some would be fallen. Break into will never fall from this list. (laughs) That's amazing. And I'm sure, I don't know. You know what? I, I, I dare people to watch this movie and just, just, just think about it as one of their favorites. And me, me not, me not having seen it, you know, I'm just going to tell people to go watch it. Maybe it'll be on the TFS 100, you know, list at the end of this uh, this whole thing, Jacob. You know, you, it fucking better. You never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> just just listen to the soundtrack and you'll instantly want to watch it, too. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, another one. Um, not, not necessarily a musical, but one with like a lot of great musical numbers, which I've seen and I love. Streets of Fire. Okay. I want to talk about that. Yes. It's, uh, I just rewatched, um, did I rewatch the whole thing? Yes, I think I rewatched the whole thing, um, a few weeks ago, uh, cause I was like in a flurry. How the fuck could you stop it? <laughs> no, cause I was in like a flurry of like watching it like late at night and then I saw like half of it and then the other half the, the next day, but I was watching, I watched like Phantom of the Paradise, Josie and the Pussycats, Streets of Fire. And then, like, Scott Program in a theater. I was watching all that, like, the same week a few weeks ago. And, yeah, this is, uh, you know, I can gush about it. Um, you know, one thing I should say is a good thing uh, recently, as of, this, as of this recording anyway, is, like, Streets of Fire is on Netflix. And I'm seeing a lot more people talk about it and, and mm-hmm. watch it for the first time. And I, I can't think of anything better because... If yep. anything, this movie still needs that, you know, high regard. I, I think the people who are smart, like you and I, Jacob, like we know how great this movie is. But yeah, it needs to be said again. You know, hey, folks, go watch Streets of Fire. Right, Jacob? 
Oh, definitely. So this movie genuinely saved my life. Wow. Um, I was, I had just graduated college and I was unemployed for a year and I was very depressed. And in that depression had kind of started to lose interest in movies as a whole. And like, I would start things and not really feel into them. And just realizing like nothing I'm watching I'm not getting anything out of watching movies anymore. And I, I'm feeling weird about that. And this was 2011. So this is, you know, early days of Netflix streaming where they still had, you know, barely anything on there. And I'm watching it on my Wii on a four by three tube TV that I have. Um, and one night I find, and what was really starting to worry me was like, I, You'll see, this is a past-heavy list. Um, you know, modern movies I love, but, like, there's something about the aesthetic of a modern movie that just does not grab me the way that, you know, an earlier film does. And the 80s specifically, I just, I love an 80s movie just because it, it hits the right vibes for me. And I was starting to worry. Maybe I've seen, like, I've seen most of the, like, classic 80s movies that people have talked about and people love, Maybe I am out of movies. Maybe I have, you know, gone as far as I can go and I'm never going to discover anything I love again. And then I saw Streets of Fire and I put it on just kind of on a whim. And within 15 seconds, I was like, this movie that I've never heard of is already the best movie I've ever seen in my life. Because it opens with that fucking another time, another place. Streets of Fire, a rock and roll fable, and then the fucking coolest song you've ever heard in your life. And then transitions into just Ry Cooter just swinging on a guitar while they introduce your main character. This movie fucking, ah, this is, Streets of Fire is just like, it is a perfect gem of a movie. When I talk about what interests me in movies is rhythm and structure and propulsiveness. Streets of Fire is that. There is not a wasted second in this movie. It ends with a sledgehammer fight in the street. It's got <laughs> yeah. Rick Moranis at his fucking sexiest. It's got... Like, a worse director than Walter Hill would not put two eight-minute-long musical numbers at the beginning and end of his action movie because they're fucking idiots. <laughs> like, yeah. This, this th- movie, it's a musical and an action movie and so terse and Amy Madigan is so fucking good because she was written to be Edward James Olmos. Yeah, which is, oh my gosh, there is, I mean, you, you're listing off like what movie it is. Like it's an action movie, musical. It's a lot of things. It's hard to even describe because it's just so, and I hate this this word, like uh, world building. It's just in its own universe. Like mm-hmm. the the set itself. If you read enough about it, you'll be like Jesus. Like that, <laughs> they put that much time and thought into this to make it look like this, and I think it works. You know, you know, for, forget like it's yeah, stunning. yeah, for, for, you yeah, forget that this was like not received well and was like supposed to be like sort of a trilogy. I only wish that had happened, but this, this is one of those things that's close to my heart. It's like, you know, 
nobody appreciated when it came out. I mean, I'm sure a few few people did, but now it's like you know this is this is my type of movie too, Jacob. I I love yeah. it because it is just so much, and it does so much so well. So um, I have spent every minute since first watching it trying to find more movies that feel like Streets of Fire. Yeah, and yeah. I've been re- very unsuccessful because <laughs> Streets of Fire exists as a singular thing, and it is exactly what I want out of a movie. There you go. Um, what's interesting is uh, we just talked about two movies from 1984, Streets of Fire and Breaking Two. They're the movie from '84, and I believe '84 is the most prominent year on your list because you have three movies from 1984. The other 1984 movie is Gremlins. Which, yeah. yeah, which, hey, you know, um, what do you think about Gremlins 2? I know this is a weird thing to say. As, as no, Yeah, I, yeah. So there is a part of me that I think the cultural reassessment of Gremlins 2 is well-deserved. Gremlins 2 is a masterpiece. But I think it has done a disservice to how good the first Gremlins is. See, I think this is a, I think that's where that's I am, Jacob. I was going to say because I love Gremlins two so much that it's just made me forgot how great the first one is. So that's where I'm coming from, and that's why I bring up Gremlins two. Um, yeah, I just need to go back to Gremlins one and kind of you know remind myself of how much a masterpiece that also is. So for twelve years, I've hosted a Christmas party um, at my house, and for twelve years, we watch. Gremlins, Die Hard, and the Star Wars Holiday Special. Back to back to back. Brilliant. And I have introduced dozens of people to Gremlins. And watching Gremlins work on an audience of people who have never seen it before is just a masterclass in joke building, tonal shifts. Like, to watch people see a Peltzer invention just large in frame and already start to laugh because they know the Peltzer Peeler juicer is not going to go well because of how so far the movie has gone. It's just fucking brilliant. What I love about Gremlins is, you know, Gremlins 2 goes from like 60 to 90. But Gremlins yeah. 1 goes from one from 0 to 60. And Gremlins 2 can't take the room to be all of the things that Gremlins is because it's so insistent on being anarchy. So Gremlins does a masterful thing where it is a five-act movie and every act belongs to a completely different genre of movie. Mm. So you have like a boy and E.T. style, like, you know, new alien pet movie. You have what are the beginnings of a horror movie. And then it shifts into being a slapstick comedy. And then it shit like... Every 25 minutes, Gremlins completely shifts what kind of movie it is. And then it's the best whatever that kind of movie it is ever. Like, when Gremlins is a straight horror movie, it fucking rules. Billy's mom killing Gremlins in the kitchen is fucking one of the all-timer scenes. Because Billy's mom is a badass and kills four Gremlins on her own with nothing but, like, cooking spray and a kitchen knife. And But then... It should 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, you're in the bar and the gremlins are breakdancing and wearing puppets and playing cards. And it's that gremlins to Looney Tunes anarchy condensed to a single scene. But 
by putting it into a movie where you've already got all these other things going on, I think it highlights it even more. Wow. Yeah. See, I, I need to, I need to give it another, another go. Cause I, I, I just bought both movies, Gremlins and Gremlins 2 a few weeks ago on Blu-ray. Cause I surprised, I was surprised. I was like, I don't own these movies, at least Gremlins 2 for God's sakes. But no, I'll, I'm, I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to give Gremlins the first one. I'm going to give it that another shot pretty soon. Pretty Hi- soon. Highly recommend. Can I suggest a tonal link between Gremlins and a movie here? You know what? I was looking through the list trying to connect one to another. But yeah, uh, you do me the service, Jacob. Go ahead. Okay. So I'm going to link Gremlins and Gremlins 2 specifically as well to Hell's a Poppin', Ah, which is Joe Dante's favorite film. I was wondering about this one because this one is one I had not. I don't think I've heard of this one even, Jacob. So you have to tell me about Joe Dante's favorite movie. Okay. So, you know how Gremlins 2 feels like the most anarchic movie ever made? Yes, absolutely. It is one-fifth of what Hell's a Poppin' is, and Hell's a Poppin' was made in 1941. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the, 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 mo- the movie opens with a musical number, and it's like, Hell's a Poppin', where anything can happen, and it probably will, and then a co- the fucking screen explodes. And then the opening credits are explosions, and then we're in hell. And then a bunch of Satan devil guys are, like, poking things and doing vaudeville jokes. And then a taxi cab explodes and appears, and they open the door, and an outrageously large number of animals come pouring out of it. And then your two lead characters finally stumble out after an absurdly large amount of ducks and goats and dogs come running out. And now they're in hell. And then... It's based on a Broadway show, and the Broadway show was plotless. It was vaudeville-style antics and fourth-wall breaking and planted people in the audience, and they would drop rice on you and say it was spiders, and there was a guy who just walks around the stage yelling about yelling someone's name, and every time you see him, he has a larger and larger tree. And then after the play is over, you walk out, and in the lobby, there's a 40-foot tree that he's stationed in the top of, and he's still yelling for this person. So that's the Broadway show, and they tried to translate that into a movie. And the premise of the movie is, it opens with 15 minutes of just nothing but insane shtick. And then, all of a sudden... um, a producer comes out and he's like, guys, we're making a movie. Movies have to have plots. They have to have romances. We, we have to have something like that. And they're like, ah, fuck it. Who needs that kind of stuff? And they're like, no, no. And so we cut into the projection booth where Shemp of the Three Stooges is the projectionist. <laughs> and he's flirting with this woman and it keeps cutting back to them. It is hell's a poppin'. There's a scene where the cameraman is like, Jesus, how long is this going to go? And they're like, you have to be here until the movie stops. He's like, oh, my God, that long? And then it cuts away, and you hear him shoot himself. <laughs> um, I I don't even know. There's no way to describe this movie. Uh, the, in the opening, there's a, a title card, and it says, any, any similarity between Hell's a Poppin' and a motion picture is entirely coincidental. <laughs> Oh my and gosh. That's the that's the vibe. It is without a doubt the most forward thinking pre of its time movie there's ever been. It is the origin for Mad Magazine, it is the origin for Mel Brooks, it is the origin of Airplane, all of those 
get that sense of style of humor from Hell's a Poppin'. And it's it's fucking awesome. I highly recommend it. It's on YouTube, so you can just watch uh, it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's a scene. Sorry, I, I I can't not talk about Hell's a Poppin' more. No, please. Um, there's yeah. a scene where like the camera the cameraman will be distracted by pretty women in the stage so he'll he'll just follow them and the actors have to come back and be like hey hey we're doing a scene here and then he, he continues to follow them there's a scene where they miss a line of dialogue so they like rewind the picture and then accidentally slide on the wrong reels so now they're in a different movie and then when <laughs> they get back to hell's a poppin it's the two main characters standing in front of themselves and then they have a conversation with themselves through rear projection it's great hell's a poppin i i cannot recommend it enough it is if you think you know what a 1940s film is like hell's a poppin will break every single one of those preconceptions oh good 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 um i'm looking forward to this this is uh, yeah this is like really the first time i've I've heard about this jacob so uh i'm in this seems this seems like my type of movie so i i'm gonna check it out too will make a lot more sense after you (laughs) joe dante has said he's like because it's been out of print for so long he's like uh i just steal jokes from hell's a poppin just because i think they deserve (laughs) to keep living wow oh my gosh um where to now hey how about another one that uh, I don't know, kind of uh, maybe the hell angle is like uh, the connection. The Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah. Don't, don't talk about some Sam Raimi. I think he. I think he does some amazing work. Uh, I I'd love him. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, so okay. Do you want to talk about the whole like you know Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two? Which one's better? Or you know is is you know is Evil Dead always going to be the one people think? Oh, that's the best Sam Raimi. Yeah, because I think you you I mean you obviously think so, Jacob. So talk about that. And um, well, I, I will yeah. say Sam Raimi is the only director who does have two films on my list. Uh, oh yeah. Spider Man Two shows up. You know what? Um, yeah. Sp- yeah. We'll, we'll we'll talk Spider Man Two we'll after this. That. But uh, yeah. but yeah, uh, let's talk about Evil Dead first. Yes, Evil Dead. Um, to me, it's no question that Evil Dead is better than Evil Dead 2. Because, for one simple reason, it's that intellectually, when you know that Sam Raimi was 22 when he made the Evil Dead, that's one thing. But I really want you to sit and fucking think about yourself at 22 and realize that Sam Raimi was 22 when he <laughs> made the Evil Dead. This is a man who comes onto the scene so fully in charge of every single one of his like filmmaking techniques and prowess. This is a man who does not even question what it takes to make an amazing movie. Like every shot in Evil Dead is the only shot that could have been in Evil Dead. And for that alone, the achievement of a bunch of 22-year-olds hit up a bunch of dentists in their hometown in Michigan, drove down to Tennessee and lived in a shithole cabin for three months, and then made what is easily one of the best horror movies ever made? Forget about it. That's amazing. Like, I I can't... You can't beat that. Evil Dead 2 is great, yeah, but, like, it's a studio. Like, you know, he made it in a gym where they built sets and stuff it's not just like in this weird fucking shack they found in tennessee (laughs) evil dead man it's i i can't get enough of it i i've been lucky enough to meet the entire cast um 
and that was a thrill of a lifetime. Oh, that's uh, I great. hope to one day meet Sam Raimi and get him to sign my rapidly deteriorating Book of the Dead. Oh my gosh, uh, it, it, it'll happen. Yeah, because see, I don't, I don't know if he goes to conventions or not, but hey, I'm sure, I'm sure that's a thing you'll eventually run into him. I think, I think we'll, yeah. I think we'll have the possibility to run into Sam Raimi once in our lives. Um, I the first thing I'm gonna say when I meet Sam Raimi is I go, hey, Sam. Good job with Spider-Man 2. Great, great movie. <laughs> Good job. It, yeah. It's... It, uh, you, okay, I'll just quickly say... Yeah. I always debate with myself, what's my favorite superhero movie? I always say Batman Returns, but Spider-Man 2 is a close second. And some days I say, hey, you know what? I think it's Spider-Man 2 today. I think that's my favorite of all time. But uh, talk to me about Spider-Man 2, Jacob. Spider-Man 2, I think, like, Batman Returns is a fucking masterpiece. But what Batman Returns is not is a superhero movie in any capacity. That is (laughs) true. That is true. It is a fairy tale about the ways that society fails these three weirdos and how they all (laughs) deal with it in various badly coping ways. But Spider-Man 2 is one of the only superhero movies that is actually about the concept of being a good person. Spider-Man 2 it takes the idea of what a superhero is and it distills it down to its barest essentials. And it's, what do you owe the world? And that is a concept that recurs in Sam Raimi's filmography. And one of the things that I really love about him is that he has a consistent morality throughout his entire filmography, be it a simple plan, be it drag me to hell, be it odds is that you owe the world more than the bare minimum and the bare minimum that is selfishness and you can be punished for selfishness and you will be punished for selfishness in a Sam Raimi universe and we all owe it to everyone else that we share this planet with to be the best version of ourselves and to be selfless and caring because that's what it means to be alive, and that's what it takes. And Spider-Man 2 is so explicitly about that, and every single aspect of that movie feeds into that theme. And that's what I really love about movies, is when everything is supporting whatever it's trying to say. It's not just... You know, so many movies, they have a plot, and then they'll just throw like a moral in there somewhere by having someone say something. A lot of monster movies will do this. They're like, oh, yeah, here's our plot. And then, by the way, at the end, someone will say, oh, we shouldn't have played God. And then (laughs) that will count as our moral. But Spider-Man 2 is so baked around this concept of being a good person is something that inspires other people to be their best selves. Like the fact that Doc Ock ends the movie by being inspired by Peter Parker and deciding to help people. Like, that's a powerful moment. The scene on the train is something that is so earnest. And the reason Spider-Man 2 got on here for me is that, like, as a comic book fan, I am a 60s Marvel above all else. That's the 60s Marvel is my comic books that I'm interested in. And everything else is kind of tertiary. It's, it's interesting. It's fine. And Sam Raimi is one of the only people who is genuinely pulling from that, not only on a visual level, but also on like a thematic level. And we are so in sync. And this movie is just perfectly cast. It's hilariously funny. 
hey, he stole that guy's pizza is maybe the best delivered line of all time. <laughs> uh, Spider-Man yeah. 2, it's, it's the one superhero movie where everything comes together and everything works. Yeah, and uh, those final moments with uh, Peter Parker and Mary Jane always always get me. Uh, I think... Oh, my I think I think with age they've gotten me more and more because like when I first saw this, like in in like high school, like when I was like I don't know like a, a wee lad, like yeah, and I, mm-hmm. I, I don't uh, I haven't gone through the things I've I've gone through now, and yeah, mm-hmm. it, it it hits harder that ending, and it's it, you and- know it could be seen as like corny with that you know with the slow motion and like her running with a dress through the you know through Central Park whatever, no. It's 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 pure unadulterated like Sam Raimi like sweetness and I I yeah. buy it and I love it. And what what rules about that is that it is negating plot wise the end of the first movie, but it is doing so in a way that is thematically deeper and an extension of it. Because at the end of Spider Man, he's saying, you know, I can't put the danger that I am going to live onto someone else. I can't let Mary Jane into my life because that is dangerous for me to do. It's my responsibility to not put that on her. And then Spider-Man 2 doesn't walk that back the way that like the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man movies do. It instead says, well, okay, but a relationship is a partnership. And she is choosing now to be with you. Yeah. You are not allowing her she has made that active choice to be in your life. And now that is something that the two of you are going to work with and move forward together. And that's such a great thing. And the final shot being Kirsten Dunst looking out and just that tinge of, I don't know if I made the right choice here. Is uh, It's the perfect like little capper ending to that movie. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And um, hey, you know what? Um... But, uh, real quick, Spider-Man 3, uh, what did you think of that movie? <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man 3 is good. I- I'm going to come down hard. Spider-Man okay. 3 is good. Okay, okay. Um, it's, it's highs, I think, are fucking as high as they can be. Spider-Man 3's entire problem is solely structural. And people don't know how to put into words when they don't like a movie structure. So then they latch on to various things that they think that explain why they don't like it. And those things are never the actual problem. Because fucking Spider-Man jazz dancing down the street. Awesome. <laughs> fucking Topher Grace. Brilliant. Ve- their portrayal of Venom. I, I, I have read every Spider-Man comic from 19... 19- 60 whatever all the way through 1995 i am still currently on my big read through but like their portrayal of venom is better than his fucking origin in the comics i i'm sorry to say it it is like making eddie brock be shitty peter parker is awesome but there's just there's too many things going on and they never really you know it was late in the game where they were told they had to add venom and then they never cracked how badly that screws with your structure when you add venom yeah so the movie doesn't quite gel in that way but it's still fucking great yeah it's it's one that like each time i see it i like it a little bit more and what what always just kills me is like yeah i guess structurally you know i i connect with that romance 
uh, like that, that's like the one core of the movie I really connect with. Mm-hmm. And then I guess structurally around it, I, I forgot Sandman was in that. Oh yeah, that's right. Like there's a, so much going on in that movie that yeah, it, it it tends to get lost that romance. But I think yeah. I think they nail it in the end, and I kind of wish we had gotten a four because I I, I I I it's like the one thing I'm surprised about. It's like I care about that romance. Like that's the that's the only comic book romance I care about. Yep ever is those two so yeah and spider-man 2 is like a huge reason why because that love story is beautiful um yeah yeah anyway enough about spider-man we could be here all night talk about spider-man uh where can we jump to let's see you know what another love story what i have not seen which i should see uh umbrellas of cherbo i don't know how to pronounce that jacob cherbo i think cherbo generally Cherbo. Cherbo. Um, oh, man, Marcella. This is... It's a beautiful movie. I love a musical. Um, you'll see this, you know, in my list that I have... Generously? One, two, three, four, five, six, six, mu- seven, eight musicals on here. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Depending on your definition of musical. Um, you know, I just, I think the synthesis of music and image is just the what cinema is made for because otherwise i don't know fucking read a book (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah the umbrellas of sherbo um i don't know how much you know about it but it is entirely sung through so Ah. there's no there's no dialogue that is not sung and it's this beautiful jazzy things aren't rhyming they're just like hey how are you doing today i mean in french um I would I would do that, but I, I you know don't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> but what I love about this movie is that every single time I've seen it, I have had a completely different emotional reaction to the final moments and how the romance is handled in the final moments. Right. That is completely dependent on where I am in that stage of my life, and I think that that's the mark of a great movie is when you're relationship with it is changing based on who you are because the movie's always going to be the same but you are going to change and going back to it time and time and it's like seeing an old friend and then realizing that there's a facet to it that you didn't consider before or sometimes it's not even like a deeper facet sometimes it's like the end of this movie I have seen as both incredibly hopeful incredibly sad incredibly tragic incredibly happy Every single time I see it, I come away with a completely different emotional response to the end of it. And I think that that's just absolutely fantastic for it. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think the main reason, well, I, well, the main reason is, is because it's a great movie. That's why I need mm-hmm. to see it, right? I, I just keep hearing that. Another reason is I just have seen it compared to La La Land so much. So I'm like, okay, yes, I'll, La La Land I love. And I'm sure I connect with this one uh, because apparently La La Land ripped off. <laughs> the ending of this movie which i'm like okay I'll, I'll i'll be the judge of that whenever i see it i guess but uh, I, i've actually never seen la la land oh uh, well i i don't know i i think i'm in i i'm alone on it uh because i love it because it's like i've had this discussion with somebody and they're like a huge like musical person like musical uh, uh film like genre film person right mm-hmm. and they're like la la land is not good because it's just it, it doesn't have enough musical numbers. It doesn't really have like, like these, these, uh, like comparing it to like in the Heights, for example, like in the Heights, mm-hmm. you know, classic sort of musical, uh, picture 
great numbers like throughout like there's just enough there that's like yes pure musical yeah la la land not so much i think it's like an anti-musical film <laughs> it has like two it's like two great opening numbers and then after that just it becomes like a drama <laughs> it becomes like a serious breakdown of like this relationship that's crumbling because of like they're they're like uh, careers and i find that fascinating and then it ends like with two more musical numbers and then that's it so la la land is a weird movie uh but i yeah. love it a lot uh and that musical element in there i think it's still amazing even though it's like an anti-musical but that apparently uh has has uh, been accused of uh you know taking a lot of um you know uh, Demi's work here in in Umbrellas of Cherbar. So, yeah, I'm interested and, in, interested in that connection. And Marcelo, you saw the Sparks Brothers documentary. I did. Right? Yes, I did. So this is um, so I'm a, I've been a huge Sparks fan since I was 15. Um, they're like my number one favorite band, and um, that is this is one of their favorite musicals, and that's why I first watched it when I was like 16. Ah, was that Russell Mail was like. Hey, no, this is this is what I'm listening to right now is the soundtrack to The Umbrellas of Cherbo. And I was like, all right, well, if he likes it, I got to fucking check it out. Interesting. And it's their new movie, Annette, with uh, Leos Carax, is apparently largely kind of inspired by that style of musical where it's also going to be a complete sung through musical where there's no spoken dialogue. Oh, I did not know that. That's I'm more intrigued by it now. I can't wait. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, I, this past weekend, I went to go see Ishtar and it was, uh, it was Ishtar presented by the Sparks brothers. (laughs) Like they, they did an intro for it, you know, a, a video intro saying how great the movie is. And I had never seen it before. I've never seen Ishtar. And I mm-hmm. went just because, like, why not? You know, uh, uh, yeah. uh, seeing it on the big screen, you know, I've heard it's, you know, funny. You know, it's a maligned bomb. Maligned in the sense of, like, you know, it's actually a good movie, folks. That's what I've been yeah. hearing. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, Sparks introduced it. And they, they said how great it was in the beginning. And then I watched it. I'm like, oh, yeah, these guys are right. This this movie is hilarious. <laughs> they, I mean, they're, they have a great... Um, film knowledge and film background and i'm so glad that they finally get to make a movie i just have to say as a fan of theirs for like 17 years now it is extremely weird that like the billboard awards were on in a bar i was at and i looked up and one of the commercials was for the sparks brothers and like just to see them on nbc at like 8 p.m in a bar i'm like this is so fucking just like unnerving because <laughs> usually I'm like, oh yeah, it's my favorite band, but it's all right. You probably haven't heard of them. It's okay. <laughs> I I love uh, them now. I, I was like I was a completely uh, just like like who, who sparks and then now after watching the documentary and like knowing more knowing more about them and they were on my favorite podcast this past week. Like like I'm like yes, mm. I, I'm a huge fan of theirs now. Like I I, I love them. Um, so I can't I, wait. I can't wait for a net. I want to call out Edgar Wright here on the Talk Film Society podcast. Uh oh, gonna start some beef, Jacob. I'm gonna start some beef. In college, my senior project, I made a 45 minute documentary about their career out of found footage. Ah. I swear to motherfucking God, we and this rack and it went on YouTube. It racked up a couple hundred thousand views from Sparks fans usually, uh, and then it was finally taken down for rights stuff. Edgar Wright's documentary opens with the exact same two songs as mine. Interesting. Now, 
I'm just saying they have a 450 song catalog and I will give him this town ain't big enough for the both of us. But to transition immediately from that to Fa La Fa Li, the song about <laughs> incest from their first album. I don't know, man. I don't know. So we're not, I mean, this is all just, you know, just, just, uh, we, we don't want to get into legalities here, but, you know. I am. I'm calling him out. <laughs> you stole from me, brother. You even took my bad structure, which I wanted to change, and you put it into your movie where you just went album to album. <laughs> which is, you I'm, know. I got I, my eye on you. <laughs> if, yeah, do, do, do you still have that that uh, that video you made? Is uh, I, or, I do indeed. Okay, okay. So you know what? Uh, uh, you know the views expressed on Talk from Society don't necessarily you know uh, you know yada yada yada. But hey, you know what? I can totally believe Edgar Wright watching your thing years ago and just thinking, you know what? Why not? <laughs> Why not just copy it? But hey, Are we uh, yeah. Edgar, if you're listening. You know, it's, it's not too late. You know, fight put, me. <laughs> no, no. Let's, okay, I, I wasn't gonna say that. I was gonna say put Jacob in the credits or something. Get get him some reimbursement. But no, you want to fight Edgar Wright? Yeah, yeah. Personally. Okay. Fair enough. Um, fair enough. I I see another connection. If uh, you're looking for, for let's a connection go to be connection. Made. Yeah. All right. So since we're talking Sparks, this is another movie that I watched because of them, um, and we're going from Jacques Demy to Jacques Tati and Playtime. Oh. Another one I have to see. Oh, wow. oh my God. Marcella, you... So, Paul Verhoeven is my favorite director. Um, and partially that's just because he's always been my favorite director and he always will be. So, But if I think about the directors who most reflect my view of the world, who most reflect how I see myself interacting with people and with existence, Jacques Tati is it. And Playtime is his masterpiece out of all the movies he made. And every single one of his movies is just about perfect. But Playtime is perfect and insanely ambitious. So that just takes it one step above. Um, Do you know much about Playtime, Marcella? I've read... uh, um, I think I've read some stuff about like the sets they built and a a lot about that. But not really. So yeah, tell me, Jacob. So... um, so the 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 character is Monsieur Hulot, and he is a tramp style silent film character. Playtime is not technically a silent film in that there is dialogue, there's sound effect, there's music, but what makes it similar to a silent film is that none of it mat like none of the dialogue matters. There's not a single line of dialogue that advances the plot in Playtime. Everything is told visually, and everything, and that's true of all of Tati's films. Everything that you need to know is told through bodies in motion. And what I love about, and so the idea is that it's this, this guy, and he is walking through a world that is slightly too complex for him, and a world that is maybe advancing just a little too far, and chaos is always going to overcome. And what Tati presents in all of his films is Tati loves people. He loves that we are essentially inherently chaotic beings, and, but we love order. 
and we try and create these systems. We try and create skyscrapers. We try and create technology that brings our life into order, but we are inherently chaotic beings. And no matter what we do to try and build that, it's always going to collapse. And there's a beauty in that collapse. And it's that beauty of collapse that makes us human and makes us joyful and lovable. And playtime is essentially just an escalating series of visual set pieces all about systems that try to be built and ways in which they fall apart. And it climaxes with a like 45 minute long set piece about the opening of a new restaurant. And it establishes so many things. And as it goes on, you're just building joke upon joke upon joke. There's a scene with a glass door with these giant metal door handles in the center and the doorman is, you know, opening and closing the door. But then eventually the doors shatter. And the, the doorman, who now has no job, holds up the just the metal door handle and holds it where it would be if the glass door was there and is still letting people in and out <laughs> as if the glass door still exists. And I think that that's just exemplary of his view of how things work. Um, there's a moment that... I don't know why it makes me cry. I think this is from one of his other films, Mon Uncle. But I think it sums up Monsieur Hulot and what I love about it. And it's that he's he's walking through the French countryside and there is a brick wall about like knee high and it's crumbling and in disrepair and you know bricks are strewn about everywhere. And as he steps over it, he accidentally kicks one of the bricks off into like the pile of all the other bricks. And he stops and he turns around and he bends over and he delicately places that one brick back where it was. And I think there's just such a beautiful futility to that motion and that movement that I fucking love it. And one of the things that I think I really respond to is that his films, you have to be so actively engaged in order to watch them. Because he presents you with essentially Where's Waldo-like tableaus. He, you know, the camera... The angles are so wide. You are just given a view of a space. And then through the sound design, he will guide your eye where to look for specific jokes. But if you're texting, if you're not listening closely, you will miss jokes that are happening. You will miss important plot points that are happening unless you are fully engaged. And I found that it's almost exhausting to watch one of his movies. When it's over, I... I almost need to rest because I'm just so fully involved in the act of watching it. And so few movies nowadays require you to actually watch them that I love that. That's something that I, I really love about his work. If you can see it theatrically, highly, highly recommend it. Oh, yeah. Like that was one thing I was dealing with during the pandemic is like uh, my movie watching habits at home. And I think this was on my list of my watch list uh, monthly thing I've been doing. And mm -hmm. I didn't get to it. Like I, for my watch list, I pick 10 movies and I usually, my goal is to watch at least like six of them. And I was like, Oh, I accomplished, mm -hmm. you know, it's a passing grade. Um, yeah. But I just missed this one. And I, yeah, kind of what you're saying, Jacob, I kind of would like to see this on the big screen. I have a feeling here in Austin, there might eventually be one. I think there might've been one years ago, but it feels yeah. like visually, and also foreign films, like, I, I don't know, I, I, I'd rather see that with my attention fully focused on the screen rather than at, than at home. So, yeah, yeah, I might wait, hopefully, fingers crossed, there'll be a, a, a Tati retrospective here in town. 
Yeah, um, they played but, it in um, Baltimore at the Charles Theater just maybe two years ago. And oh, I was able to catch it then. There you go. So let's jump to, to another one. You you mentioned this director as your favorite director, Paul Verhoeven, and let's talk about RoboCop. Okay. My boy, <laughs> a, a classic. So, so I said earlier that I would I would mention when we got to my favorite film, and here we are. We made it. We made it. Marcelo, I, I, I swear this is a true. I had a job interview this morning, and I brought up RoboCop, and <laughs> they asked me about the RoboCop remake, um, which I still have not seen. Uh, <laughs> wow. But, uh, hey, don't ever see that movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not going to. Don't I ever fucking, do. No. I have a life to live. I'm not going to see if I can RoboCop. No. Uh, you should watch. Marcel, have you seen our RoboCop remake? Oh my gosh! And not just the dick shooting off scene. I was gonna say I've Though seen the dick shooting off scene rules. I've seen that scene for sure. I think I've only seen part of that. I remember that coming out, uh, but no, I've not seen the full thing. So, for listeners who don't know, our RoboCop remake is they took I think like fifty different filmmakers, comedy troops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and each one of them was given a scene from RoboCop to remake. And it takes up the entire length of the film. So you end up with a remake of the entirety of RoboCop, but everyone was given freedom to do whatever they wanted for their version. So there's one that's done entirely in interpretive dance. There's ones that are done with just the scene where RoboCop shoots the guy's dick off. It is identical to the scene in the movie, except 60 more guys with their dicks come out, and then RoboCop shoots all of their dicks off. It's there's scenes there's a Christmas set scene that I fucking love to death where RoboCop is writing home to Robo Mom and Robo Dad, um, but I mentioned our RoboCop remake just to highlight that you could not do that task with ninety nine percent of movies. The only reason you can do it with RoboCop is because every fucking scene in RoboCop is entertaining, and. To think about how truly rare that is in a movie for every single moment in that movie to be five-star entertainment is wild. Like, RoboCop goes so far beyond what it needs to be. And RoboCop, you know, it starts from a deficit because it has a stupid title and a stupid premise. (laughs) And... Paul Verhoeven threw the script in the trash when he got it because he's like, I'm not fucking making RoboCop. (laughs) But RoboCop is, I think, partially underrated because I think so much of it has come true in the years since that it doesn't play as parody anymore. Um, The idea that the cops wear body armor was supposed to be like insane fantasy like, look how shitty this world is. Cops have to wear body ar- Cops choose to wear body armor. And now that the, the cops in RoboCop look underdressed compared to what we get in police today. Yeah. And RoboCop is amazing because it's a Dutch socialist looking at America and just nakedly being like, this is what you are. And that's disgusting. <laughs> and... and Every single... This is another film where... This is like Spider-Man 2. Every single aspect of RoboCop all plays into the exact same... The theme of RoboCop, which is a guy loses his identity through corporate... 
through you know the corporatization of America and he the only way he can fight that back is by asserting his individuality and through violence because that's the only thing Americans know how to do and like every single scene in RoboCop supports that message every single media break which the media breaks alone like I feel like we can take that for granted how thrilling an idea it is to say hey we're gonna get just peeks at what this world is like that have nothing to do with the story have nothing to do with the plot this is just the world you are in and we're gonna do that through commercials because this is a movie about how fucked up corporate America is and I love that I love that it subtly implies that OCP specifically transferred Murphy to the department at the beginning of the movie because they knew he was likelier to die there and he was a good candidate for RoboCop. Like, that's... That's dark. That is a dark concept. And it's intelligent and it's funny and it's action-packed and Paul Verhoeven's blocking is... Again, I I harp on this a lot because I think it's something that's missing from a lot of movies today, which is just good blocking. And Verhoeven is a master at moving actors in a space so that the camera barely has to move to create an entirely new shot out of it. Um, The scene between Dick Jones and um, Bob Morton in the bathroom is essentially done as a two-shot but we're seeing it through the mirror and then they both briefly rearrange and all of a sudden we're getting over to the shoulder shots. The seat, there's a giant oneer that never announces itself as a oneer, which is the boardroom scene before um, the Kenny gets blown away by Ed 209, which is the only thing you remember out of that scene, but it still yeah. opens with a masterful oneer that never draws attention to itself, which is the kind of wonder that I love. I think a lot of times directors are like, I'm going to do one, this is all going to be one take, and it's going to be really ostentatious about it. And Verhoeven's like, fuck that. But he transitions from three men talking into a completely separate two-person conversation into a long rotation around the table as they give a speech, all timed to end so that the camera is showing us Delta City as they say the words Delta City, and it's like a five minute long sequence that is all timed out so perfectly that it's fucking ah, Robocop is the best food movie ever made. And I will fight anyone who says anything different, including every single person who appears on this podcast listed <laughs> in their top 25. Well, you have to fight. Uh, let's see. Greg, David, Brianna, Sarah, Manish, uh, everybody. Cause yeah, I, think I can take them all. <laughs> you just want to fight everybody today, Jacob. I, Marcella, here, here's why RoboCop is so good. Yeah, nobody me. would watch RoboCop and say, "You know what RoboCop needed? A guy getting melted by toxic waste." <laughs> this would have been a perfect movie if only there was a guy getting melted by toxic waste. Nobody would have sat there and thought that. But RoboCop's like, "Hey, fuck it! You want a guy melted by toxic waste? We're gonna throw that in as a bonus." It has nothing to do with anything else, but you're still going to get it because we fucking care about entertaining you and we care about making you think. Yeah. Every I, line is quotable. Stop me. I, I can't. I, I will talk about Robocop <laughs> much more if you don't stop me. See, this is why I think some of these episodes go long is like I'm just listening to people and I am <laughs> enraptured by what they're saying because 
most of the time I'm in complete agreement or I'm just really want to be convinced on these movies. Like, but this one, you don't need to convince me with Jacob. I love it. I do. And I will say it's like teetering, like in my, it's, it's, it's a good chance it will be in my top 25, but right now it's like, you know, kind of in the bottom, but it's one of those I can, I just always have the urge to see it every once in a while i never sit down and do it i should watch it more but yeah it's a special movie for me because since seeing it like on cable or even or not even cable like like syndicated tv like on a saturday afternoon like when i was like 10 you know being freaked out even by like the censored uh shots like i knew mm-hmm. it was happening they just didn't show it on tv and then growing up seeing it as like a teenager and then like as an adult saw on the big screen a few years ago that was amazing uh i bought that arrow 4k not 4k the oh. arrow 4k restoration of it that oh blu-ray my god it's so good to finally have a perfect home copy of that movie yeah so yeah uh, it, it's one of those movies i will buy um whatever r- regardless of like what format it, it's in you know i if i have it, bought it four times now <laughs> Yeah, I, I have multiple copies of it, and I am okay with buying more. So, I love. RoboCop. I will. I will highly recommend um, taking a spin with the um, Aero RoboCop disc, where it is the um, isolated score. Ah, and okay. this is a thing that I recommend everybody do with their favorite movies, which is either if there is an isolated score, listen to that and watch the movie, or just turn off the sound and make a playlist of associated music that you think would go well with the experience. I've done this with RoboCop. I've done this with Streets of Fire. You gain such a deep appreciation of the visual storytelling that's going on by doing this. You learn so much about what is communicated through camera movement, through blocking, through just the edit. Highly recommend. Um, And Basil Polidorius' score is fucking amazing. Um, and on the Arrow Blu-ray, there is a cut cue for Ed 209, where it's like, when they're introducing Ed 209, that's like Ed 209's heroic music that they ended up cutting out of the movie. That is really cool, and as somebody who's seen RoboCop like 80 times, just, it's always nice to see anything that you haven't heard or seen before in your favorite movie. Oh, yeah, I, I totally get that. Because, um, like, I don't know, like, a real real quick story, and I'll shut up, but, like, um, like 11 years later, Scott Pogrom, like, my favorite movie of all time, like, they, mm-hmm. they, they just released the Brie Larson uh, uh, Black uh, Black Sheep song that she did, mm-hmm. and they never released it by itself until this past year, and now that's all I'm listening to, is that song, because I've never been able to do that before. So, even 11 years later, yeah, I'm still yeah. eager to for, for more of my favorite movie. Uh, why don't we jump to, you know what, another sci-fi movie? I mean, this one's a classic. I, I, I this is one of those where it's like, oh, that's right. This, this, this one should be on my list. The Matrix. I, okay, real quick. I saw The Matrix again for the however manyth time, like uh, mm-hmm. right, not right before pandemic, but like a few months before things shut down. They're playing at, at like the Adobe Cinema in my town. Mm-hmm. It was that. It was that new 4K restoration and. Mm-hmm. It just hit me once again. It was like, yes, this is one of the best movies ever. This is not only heralded like a new um, visual look for for movies going forward with with the with the effects and everything. I don't. It it's still mind blowing that it's just so 
goddamn effective from like the bottom to the top, from like the story to the action to set pieces. It's a beautiful movie, Jacob. Uh, I'm sure you agree. The the fact that we were around to see the Matrix when it came out just stuns me. Yeah. Because I'll be honest, I don't think anything like the Matrix, anything with the impact of the Matrix, I honestly, I don't think anything has come along since in the 22 years. A completely original idea, not based on any existing properties or concepts, that is so separate from the kinds of movies that are being made every day that feels so fresh and so new and just blows you through the back of the fucking theater what what else is there what could even remotely compare to what the matrix did in 1999 i that is a good point i cannot think of anything really that comes close to that to that it being that like revolutionary as much of a success uh, as it was there's nothing that yeah, compares the fact to that, that it was a hit yeah that like i am i am so thankful like movies are good if the matrix can exist and be a gigantic hit that inspires fucking 10 years of bad wire foo that we hated <laughs> at the time because it was ripping off at the matrix but now you look at it and you're like oh man i fucking i miss when movies were like lyrical and not afraid to be non-literal like i don't know fucking if you look at the mick g charlie's angels and the elizabeth banks charlie's angels which i still enjoyed the fact that the mick g ones are like yeah fuck it let's just throw some wire foo in there does it make sense no who gives a shit it looks cool Those Make are some, movies look cool again, people. Yeah, those were some great times, by the way. Yes, yeah, so that that wire food from like the uh, early two thousands. Yeah, why can't we go back to that? It's just it's, everything's just so grounded now. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Marcelo, did you see The Matrix when it first premiered? No, I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it a few months later on DVD, uh, but I was hooked. I mean, I yeah. I'm gonna be honest. I, I do have. Depends on what day you ask, but I may have more affinity for the sequels than the Matrix itself, the first one. But I love, I love them all. I do. I, I do. will, I will say, the Matrix sequels, a fucking rule. Okay, good. I was a Matrix sequels poo-pooer for many years, having not watched them, and then I watched them again for the first time maybe three years ago after having not seen them since theaters, and I went, oh no, these fucking rule. Yes. So I saw The Matrix theatrically with my family, 1999. I'm oh wow. Nine I'm nine years old. (laughs) That's that's amazing. (laughs) And it blew my friggin' mind. And I still have a vivid memory of we we saw it in a mall in rural Maryland, and afterwards we went like shopping. And while my stepmom and sister are like in JC Penny. My dad and I are both doing bullet time freeze karate <laughs> kicks at each other. That's and like, incredible. That's just such a vivid memory I have from the experience of seeing this movie. And this is a movie that kind of fell off my radar for a very long time. Like, I loved it when it came out, but like, after the sequels, you know, it kind of tarnished its reputation a little. I think nerds being really into it tarnished its reputation a little. But I think a key thing to remember is that, you know, reputation is not the film itself. And The Matrix, divorced from all cultural context, is pretty much a perfect movie. 
This yes. is another movie that its structure is sublime. I have timed it out before, and literally at the exact 30 minute marks, it there is a plot changing act change. Yeah. So act one, the first 30 minutes of the film, lasts you up until Neo unplugs for the first time. And can we just talk about how weird that act one is? There's no movie like act one of The Matrix that is a massive hit. It's dark. It's weird. It's got this like, it's got the vibe of like a noir slash techno thriller. But it has no real relationship with what the rest of the movie feels like. That sense of unease, that sense of, I don't know what's exactly happening. I don't know who I am. And for a movie to open with that many questions is, I think, largely a dangerous move. I think you'd lose audiences very quickly that way. But The Matrix constantly doles out enough information to keep you interested. And it constantly doles out enough just weird shit to make you want to keep watching. Like Neo's mouth being fused over into just a fleshy nothing. That weird little metal thing they rip out of his belly button. And then you get to the first Kung Fu scene where it's Neo training with Morpheus. Yeah. And I think the glory of the matrix is that it makes discovering what the premise of the matrix is so fucking fun. There is no exposition in the matrix. There is extremely entertaining scenes that explain the world. So we get, you know, I know Kung Fu show me fuck that that moment is so cool and you're so excited because it is a concept that you just there is a power fantasy element to it but there is also just an excitement of this is so interesting and neat and then the way the wachowski sisters film the fight scenes in in such a virtuosic way they steal they they look you know let's be honest they steal the hong kong style of shooting action which i don't know why everybody doesn't do like the camera movements of the matrix movie action scenes are perfect they are we're going back to fred astaire here they are showing you know it's a lot of waste up stuff and a lot of the fight scenes are sent against a horizontal backdrop and so you have almost a like fighting video game style two people and then the cameras move to create new angles with the motions of the characters themselves so a a wide swing of the arm will be the thing that triggers the camera to then move into a new position where it then stops and lets you see something and the way that it's edited is so perfect the matrix just fucking rules and like the sequels, I think, are amazing. And I think what makes the sequels cool is that the first Matrix is a movie that inherently cannot have sequels, to my mind. Because the Matrix ends by saying, Neo is the one, the one is going to save us, the one is going to save us all. If so, Neo is now the one. Therefore, this battle is over. We don't, everything else is just table setting. Like, we, we know this. But then Matrixes 2 and 3, or as I think of them, the Matrix 2, because they're one movie, yeah. just says, hey, if our entire premise is don't believe everything you hear, 
why the fuck did you believe us when we told you that the one was going to be the thing that saves everything? And then you have to reconsider all of your notions from the first movie. But without them, I think The Matrix is just... It's perfect. It is a perfect movie. There, the, And the fact that it took so long for the trans reading of this movie to like become one of the dominant narratives about it is almost baffling like the climax of the movie is agent smith dead naming neo and say you know mr anderson and then him going my name is neo and then jumping out of the way of a moving train that then blasts agent smith like the clarity of purpose to this movie is so fucking great and i love it the matrix rules the end yeah that that uh, the, the the trans reading it's something in my most recent watches uh, in the last few years I've really caught on and I'm like yeah wh- why wasn't this like you know more as like a because uh, you know you, you you mentioned it earlier like the people who gravitate towards this some of them have have like are have taken it like the red pill blue pill thing like those people like that's mm-hmm. that's all terrible community but. If, if they only just saw the movie for what it is, actually, you know, and what it says, yeah, yeah it's it's completely misunderstood by the, the dumbest people because it's, it's there. It's there. Yeah. And what I kind of love about it is that I think one of the things that, like, when The Matrix came out, the conversation was like, oh, it's so philosophical. It's so deep. And then they would talk about, like, the most basic shit, like, what if reality is a simulation? And it's like, all right, that idea is expressed by that single sentence I just said. Like, that's not that interesting, but there's so much more interesting stuff going on in the Matrix that has nothing to do with kind of the concept of what the Matrix is that exactly. has more to do with identity. And then also, again, just the the filmmaking prowess involved in the Matrix is just absolutely top notch. All right, you know what, Jacob? I have an idea. Why don't we take a break? Uh, and we'll that come back. Great. Yes, we should take a break. Uh, and we'll come back and talk about the rest of your list. So listen- I will sleep with the copy girl. <laughs> You'll be mad at me. <laughs> That's a reference to a TV show. Um, so <laughs> listeners, not even one I like. <laughs> I know. I was on a break. Okay. Uh, so we'll be back after these messages. There won't be any messages. It's just a little sound cue. All right. We'll be back. back oh man hey what a break what a break i feel refreshed i mean it's only been a few seconds for the listeners and it does have been a few seconds for us it's not like we took a week off or something um (laughs) so here we are let's talk about the rest of your list jacob again unranked right we're we're jumping around here um looking at the lists like like i was like where where am i gonna go next okay like is is uh okay how about this this one came this one just flashed at me quiz show mm-hmm. uh quiz show i watched that today to prepare for this oh wow i hey i i, I it's like i'm psychic or, or something from 1994 <laughs> directed by robert redford this is one i actually have not seen and i've been meaning to see for years jacob so talk this to me about movie. Qu- uh, quiz show 
Yeah, so if you don't know about Quiz Show, it's a true story based on the Quiz Show scandals of the 1950s, particularly with the show 21 and the fact that it was entirely rigged and um, they were supplying the contestants with the correct answers and they were forcing contestants to take dives in order to kind of, you know, promote Geritol, which was the advertiser for the company, for the game shows. But what makes Quiz Show so great and... Have you seen, um, this is going to be a weird comparison point for something like this. Have you seen The People versus O.J. Simpson? Uh, not all of it. I've seen some of it. Okay, so The People versus O.J. I think is the like one of the greatest things that have been done filmically because it is about everything that makes America, America. It taps into every sin that forms this country it's race celebrity culture it's you know the criminal process it is police corruption it is our obsession with tabloid fodder it is sexism it is all of these things coming together into a single true to life story and quiz show does something very similar where it is about these overarching themes of america it is about capitalism it is about the origin point of our like mass media culture and a breaking point where as a society we can accept either the idea of truth having a value to itself or not and we ended up choosing not and because of that we have kind of ended up where we are today and Quisho taps into ideas of anti-semitism and so many different kind of topics all kind of coalesce together and it's all anchored by Ray Fiennes and John Turturro and Rob Morrow from Northern Exposure all doing really great work. Um, the hook is that John Turturro is a Jewish contestant who's not very like camera ready, but he had been promoted as the like guy for 21 for a couple of years for like weeks because he was doing well, very well because he was an underdog but then they decide that they want him to take a dive because they have Ray Fiennes playing Charles Van Doren, who is this like academic son of a professor. He's rich, he's handsome, and they want him to be the face of like intellectual vigor for America. And Ray Fiennes gets like talked into the scam. Like he 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 backs away from the idea at first and then gets talked into doing it, but then kind of falls in love with his own celebrity and really starts supporting it. And it's just so interesting. And every single moment of the movie is like really exciting and compelling. And like, it's just fun to watch, which is not always true with these kind of big picture movies. And Martin Scorsese is in it. And he has an amazing role as the owner of um, the network. No, as the owner of Geritol, which is the supplement company that sponsors the show. And even that, like, Geritol still exists today, even though it was found in, like, 1962, that it did absolutely nothing for anybody. <laughs> it's, like, mostly alcohol, it's an iron supplement, and it was for people with tired blood. <laughs> and it was essentially, if you feel tired, you should drink some Geritol, and it'll, it'll like, increase your vim and vigor. And then they realized that it only works for people with, like, anemia, which is not 99% of the population. But so you follow this, like, big conspiracy and these, like, obsessions and this. It's great. 
quiz show. Um, yeah, I, that's. Yeah, we it, we, we got to keep moving, but that's, that's, <laughs> those are my thoughts on quiz show. I love quiz show. I I I, I always forget. And maybe it's because I hadn't seen it. I've just heard so much about the movie, but I forget it's a Robert Redford film. He's not in it, is mm-hmm. he? He's not in quiz no. show. No, yeah, which is like interesting, right? Like you think he'd, yeah. he'd find a way to be in it, but no. Um, so yeah, it's it's one I've been hearing about forever. It's one I need to see. Uh, and I, I I think I did see that Scorsese, uh, uh, his character, the clip of his uh, from Quiz Show on Twitter. I think someone shared it. I go, oh, even more incentive for me to watch it. So yes, yeah. I, will, I will watch it. He has it. a great scene where he talks about, he's like, well, you know, even if your investigation comes down and we stop rigging these shows, he's like, we don't have to rig them. We'll just make the questions easier. Nobody is watching for the questions. The only thing they're watching for is the money. Oh, and yes. it's such a, like a, just a great, I don't know, like shot down the middle of like what television is. And it's questions about ethics and what is the right thing? And does truth have a value in a society? Because there is an argument to be made that it's just TV. Who really gives a shit if a quiz show is rigged or not? But maybe there is a value to honesty being something that is expected from our public utilities which the airwaves technically are yeah yeah so i don't know it it asks more questions than it answers and i love a movie that does that oh amazing um hey uh we can go to this one which kind of hits some of the points um but also socially conscious uh, do the right thing from 1989 Spike Lee. Yes. I mean, obvious. I've seen this one, Jacob. It's yeah. It's a classic. It's it's one I've been uh, wanting to rewatch recently for many reasons. Also, I think it's a it's a summer movie, and uh, it's it's fucking hot and terrible in Texas right now. So, what a perfect time to watch Do the Right Thing. Uh, but yeah, but talk about Do the Right Thing, Jacob. Yeah. So it's part of what I would consider the trio of movies on my top twenty-five list that are movies about America. And as the only one that is so heavily focused on race, which I think is the major, like, defining point, one of the major defining points of the country, I think that's really important. But do the right thing, like, you know, there is such a, there's such a cultural weight to this movie. There's such a, like, you know, depth of conversation that it sometimes overshadows the fact that it is just really fucking funny and well-made and is so energetic and intensely made and for it to be Spike Lee's third film like he comes out of the gate and says okay I am finally completely in control of my like cinematic techniques and I know the story I want to tell and here it is and it's like a shot to the heart and that it's again like Quisho it's it's so entertaining while at the same time raising these questions. And it's another movie that I think has more questions than hard answers. Um, I highly recommend if you have the Criterion Blu-ray, there is an amazing special feature that is Spike Lee in front of a panel at Cannes um, before the film has come out in America, fielding questions from pretty much all white French journalists. (laughs) And... It is so, like, one of the, the, my favorite part of the entire thing is that one of the journalists goes, you know, you ended the movie with quotation from Martin Luther King and then from Malcolm X. 
And to me, I think it would have been more powerful had you ended on the Martin Luther King quotation instead of the other way around. And Spike Lee's like only reaction is just the most deadpan, disgusted look I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's great. I love that. Oh, I but love also, that, it's got man. Danny Aiello. No, no top 25 list is complete without Danny Aiello. You know, I, I, I don't want to do the math, but, you know, I, I should look back at all the the guests I've had on and their lists, and I'm sure Danny Aiello has made an appearance on each and every one of them. I'm sure. I don't even have to look, actually. I, I, I can guarantee it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's great. I, I think that an argument could be made that Do the Right Thing is the best American film of the 20th century. I think that would not be a hard argument to make. No, not at all. I, you know, if anything, yeah, it, it, if anybody argues against it, then I don't know what to make of that person. Maybe they haven't seen it. You know, that maybe that's my argument. It's like, if you don't think that's true, you haven't seen the movie. If you see the movie, and, you'll completely understand why. And it's... I mean, it's amazing and also so depressingly telling that it is 100% as applicable today as when it was made. Yeah, yeah. I like, yeah. I first saw it this... It feels like it was written like a year ago. Yeah. I, I, saw this, I saw this for the first time semi-recently, like maybe five or six years ago. And mm-hmm. I was like, Jesus Christ. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And yeah. Then seeing it again, maybe two or three years ago, yeah, I'm just saying. Every time I see it, it's like, it's like, God damn it! Like, <laughs> it's sad that this is still the way it is, and Spike Lee captured it so well, depressingly so. Like, yeah, um, I, I hope to one day live in a in a country that can see it as like an artifact. But no, it's still very much what it is uh now so uh yeah but important um and it it captures a place so perfectly like that block is so real in your mind after you've seen do the right thing absolutely yeah um i hate to say it's stupid thing but hey new york is like another character in do the right thing and (laughs) (laughs) but i'm i'm being uh pretty much sincere when i say that because it does feel that way um like very few directors can shoot New York, like Spike Lee can shoot New York. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of cities in America, let's go to Nashville. Um, I was just about to say, let's hit the uh, the third of the America trio. Yeah. It's I, Nashville. I had a feeling it was going to be either Nashville or RoboCop, but Nashville. <laughs> I mean, that that is also, that is America. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a hell of a movie. Um, I love Robert Altman. There was a time when I just was just obsessed with the man. I saw so much of his movies. I still need to see a lot more, but this was up there for me. I think Mash may be my favorite Altman, although I need to rewatch a lot of them. But I love Nashville too. Um, talk about Nashville, Jacob. Yeah. So I mean, in my pantheon of favorite directors, it's Verhoeven, it's Jacques Tati, and it's Robert Altman. Like those are the the three kings in in my eyes, and. I think Robert Altman, his work as a whole is almost more interesting to me than any of his individual pieces. Um, It's his method of working. It is the fact that he is so clearly the... 
it's interesting because you don't want to say he's the author because he is no like his whole thing is that he is a collaborative creator but his films that he makes have the stamp of him having made them and what i love about his work is that he's famous for saying that a great film has never been made and when he says that he means that movies are so indebted to both novels and the stage that there's never been a film that could only be a film and that owes nothing to any previous form of art and he always said that in his mind the perfect movie is one where you watch it and you come away and somebody says what's that about and you say i have no idea but i know that it moved me and i know that i loved it and I can't articulate what it means to me, but I just know that it had that experience. I had that experience with it. And I think that's what defines the best Altman's work. It's like going into a museum and seeing just one of those giant paintings where you are self-guided. It is up to you to determine what are the focal points. It is up to you. You know, Nashville is not, and no Altman film is going to hold your hand. There's no plot to speak of. I mean, if you say, what's Nashville about? And you say, oh, well, a country music star gets assassinated. Like, that creates an image in your mind. But it's more just, here's this space. Here is 25 characters. We're going to watch them live for two and a half hours. And you're going to discover something about yourself. And in doing so, you're also going to discover something about the culture in which they live and about what defines America as a whole. And I think nowhere was his scope grander than Nashville, and I think nowhere was his aim truer than Nashville. I could have put... This list could be 15 Alton films, because (laughs) he just fucking made so many great ones. But uh, I had to pick one, so I I picked Nashville. And it's also a musical, and like I said, that's that's something that's very special to me. Um, And the music is great. Uh, you know, the actors wrote their own songs and fucking Keith Carradine won an Oscar for his. So, oh, it's, yeah, it's amazing. I, I it's one I've I've been uh, meaning to rewatch recently. I don't know why. Like there's just been either people. Ta- I see people talking about Nashville, which just comes up in conversations or also just now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I. Uh, oh, and also I saw this is like a weird tangent. Like apparently the Nashville Criterion uh, release is out of print because uh, Par- oh. yeah, Paramount pulled the plug on, on its um, deal with Criterion. So like that, Days of Heaven, um, I forget what other Paramount pictures uh, that were at Criterion are no, no longer in the Criterion collection or they're out of print. But that was one of them. Wow. And I'm like, oh. I just bought mine like a month ago, so I'm very you, excited. Yeah. You lucked out because, yeah, uh, I, I bought mine a few years ago and I'm, I'm happy I did. Um, and I think it's because like Paramount is like, um, they're branching into uh, their own Blu-ray releases and there's going to be like a bare bones Blu-ray, Blu-ray release of like Days of Heaven coming out and I think a, like a, you know not as great release of Nashville coming out too uh, through Paramount so don't fret yeah. people if you want to own Nashville on Blu-ray it'll be on Blu-ray but it'll be if you know not as great uh, release compared to the Criterion release. Sorry, one of the things that I, I just I really love about Nashville, and I'm just looking at my list chronologically, and it sits right next to Playtime, which is Jacques Tati, and they both do the same thing where the camera is voyeuristic in a way that's not meant to be distancing, but is meant to be engaging, where 
you have this voyeuristic camera and you are shown this just you know this display this tableau and it is up to you as an audience member to figure out what the focal points of the scene are and to figure out which conversations are important to you to listen to and i think that's just that's so great it mimics being alive in the world so well and it is so unlike any other film where dialogue is king because Altman famously doesn't give a shit about scripts or dialogue. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's amazing. Um, why don't we go to, we're just going to jump genres and decades and we'll talk about the iron giant. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brad bird, 1999 iron giant. I mean, for God's sakes, <laughs> it, it, it's, it, I love this movie. I don't know. I don't know what to say about Iron Giant because I love it so much, and I have like fond memories of watching it for the first time in a theater, you know, like oh wow, twelve years ago, and kind of going obviously going in like blind. I know I knew about the Iron Giant. I I, I knew what it was about, but nothing. Exp- you know, I was not prepared for what I ended up seeing, and yeah, I <laughs> I just realized. Um, because uh, who, who's the voice of the Iron Giant in Iron Giant? Jacob, r- r- remind <laughs> <What>? me. <laughs> so if you know anything about me, an anti-gun parable where Vin Diesel learns yeah. to be a good person by emulating <laughs> Superman is like so laser focused, targeted at Jacob DeNoble. Yeah. I can't not put this list, this in my list. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, that man later, but let's talk about the Iron Giant as a film. Uh, Jacob, yeah, talk about Iron Giant. I mean, really, honestly, those three elements are the things that really strike out to me. Oh, that's I mean, it? It's, I mean, that's not it, because <laughs> this is you know beautifully designed. It's got that... I've always been kind of obsessed with the Cold War era. Um, I think if you love movies, you end up be like the more research you do on film history the more you accidentally become an expert on cold war american history because it intersects so often in so many different ways you know you have the mccarthy area you have the atomic bomb you have like every 10 years that you know these two things are just so intertwined in a way that like global politics influence films today but i don't know if they are necessarily as fused and as fixed with films like you can watch movies and not think about the global war on terror not a lot i mean i I, you know the the fucking marvel movies or spite that you know they they bring it up or not intentionally or man of steel but (laughs) there are there are movies you can watch that are completely divorced from that but i think for from the 50s through the late 80s everything is touched by the cold war and so that's just i don't know that's just an interesting facet of what it means to be a film fan of 21st century of 20th century film is that you end up learning and diving so deeply into this and so the iron giant reflecting that and being about that being about space age technology but also these values of valuing human life valuing pacifism valuing the anti-gun message like it's so coherent and so clear and it's not i like the pixar movies but sometimes i think the pixar movies can get a little up their own ass about their themes and like 
Like, Soul was enjoyable, but Soul has a message that, like, cannot apply to a child. Like, a child just yeah doesn't have the life experience to <laughs> get it. Which, I don't, it just seems like a weird move to me for your children's film. But The Iron Giant is something that is, it, the clarity of message is so purposeful and intentional, and I love that about it. And it's, it's Brad Bird's best, um... Yeah, The Incredibles is fun, but I don't think he's ever topped The Iron Giant. Yeah, I have a soft spot for The Incredibles, but uh, I think I'm just fooling myself, if, if I'm, if I'm going to be honest. I think Iron Giant, um, yeah, just, just outpaces it. Uh, Iron Giant never accidentally or intentionally becomes Ayn Randian. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Jesus Christ. I think that's overblown with The Incredibles personally, but well, I can see how that reading arises. But Well, th- I think The Incredibles, not so much. Incredibles 2, yeah, and Tomorrowland, yeah. for sure. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he, sure, he sure loves Rand. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> let's not talk about that. Um, yeah. Why don't we jump to kind of similar, maybe? I don't know. Godzilla? <laughs> Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Big, big monster. Big monster, <laughs> right? You know, kind of also talks about uh, geopolitical war. I don't know. It's a connection there. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, obviously, we're talking... Oh, by the way, 1954 Godzilla. I'm not talking... Was it 1998 Godzilla or... Uh, <laughs> 2014, 2014 Godzilla. Godzilla. This is the original, 54. Yes. Um, um, this holds up, doesn't it, Jacob? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this... This, again, plays into this idea about how integral the Cold War is to film history because we are going back to atomic testing. And, you know, this movie, when it came out, is so directly inspired by the headlines. Like, the Lucky Dragon incident that inspired this film is reproduced almost entirely in the opening minutes of this movie where a fishing boat, in the real story, a fishing boat sails off and they happen to sail within waters that Americans have not told anyone was going to be where a nuclear test was going to happen and the sailors all horrifically died after getting radiation poisoning from this and so the opening of Godzilla reflects that news story where it's this sailing boat goes out and there's just this white flash and they come back irradiated and dying and the specter of the idea of the nuclear bomb is just weighs so heavily on this movie and this is another one where i think godzilla fans godzilla fans i find ten have the tendency to be a little uh they want to defend godzilla against people who would think it's stupid so when they talk about this first movie they're like no 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 but this first movie's about things and it is but that also underlies the fact that the first godzilla movie is honestly one of the best just monster movies from a straight up entertainment value yeah even beyond all of its messaging um it is like if you stack it up against you know beast from Fifty Thousand fathoms if you stack it up against any other giant monster movie from the era godzilla wins out for sheer entertainment value and it takes the terror so seriously you know there are moments that are just you know there's a scene that is just the choir of children singing after the destruction because the destruction scene happens about halfway through and we end up with like a 20 minute sequence that is just trying to rebuild 
because that is what people had to do in the wake of the the bombings like Godzilla is just it's you know it's great the effects I think hold up I think the black and white is extremely kind to the tokusatsu style effects Um, I think Godzilla looks fantastic for almost every shot of this movie Um, it's great it's it's a classic and it deserves its status and it deserves every sequel that they want to make because Godzilla is just the best yeah I totally agree um, it it still shakes me to my nerve each time I see it because it works like you said I mean it's it says a lot you know in its messaging but it also is still pretty terrifying as like a horror movie as a monster movie so oh god yeah um and that the 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 way godzilla is still iconic like it's it still stems from that original like the 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 war you know the man in suit like all that is still iconic to me so as it should be to everybody yeah they every choice made in that movie is the right choice yeah um so i go why don't we jump to 2001 and a little movie called The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, I mean... Okay, so uh, I, I would like to be clear here. Um, so it just says The Fellowship. I, I take The Lord of the Rings as a single movie. That oh, trilogy is you. one movie. <laughs> they were made at the same time. I only watch them as a single unit. Uh, the Lord of the Rings is one movie that okay. happened to get released into three parts. <laughs> I just I every time this comes up I have to mention it okay and funnily enough it's we're doing this as uh, as part of the TFS 100 series right mm-hmm. the first time I did this list the first time I did this ballot this poll it was back in t- 2014 mm-hmm. um, and I made the decision of like let's count the Lord of the Rings that trilogy as one film. Contro- the right decision. Yeah, wait, let me finish. Controversial <laughs> decision, I, I should say. So controversial, in fact, somebody wrote a blog about it, which surprised me because, like, <laughs> that was before the website was up. That was before, you know, it was like a, an official thing, Talk Film Society. I was just an account mm-hmm. on Twitter. Just, <laughs> you know, and, and, and people took this list so seriously because, yes, Lord of the Rings made the list. That trilogy counted as one movie, and I forget where it fell. It was like, I don't know, maybe high 50s. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, in the top 50, I mean. And somebody was just so upset that I made the decision of counting as one movie that they were like, no, it's three movies. They made a blog post about it. They tagged me. They were clearly upset, but I'm like, okay, whatever. Then the next one in 2017. I made the decision of counting in its three. So I, I backtracked Jacob. So unfortunately, you know, when I count these, uh, uh, these ballots, I'm going to have to count. You put down here fellowships. So I'm going to count fellowship. I cannot count the three movies as one movie. Although I do I, see, I do see your, your, your point of view though. Marcelo, if you do that, I am going to substitute Lord of the Rings out of here entirely because Lord of the Rings as a whole is more interesting than Lord of the Rings as three discrete films. Okay. I'm uh, if okay. I'm just sharing with that. For the podcast, we're just going to talk Lord of the Rings. Okay, okay, for the podcast. But for your official ballot, you're going to say I refuse to say Fellowship of the Ring is one of my top 25 movies of all time because if that movie had bombed and they never made another one, 
no, I, I wouldn't be here talking about it. Well, before we jump into Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, do you know what you'd substitute it for? Like, do you know the movie you'd, you'd slide in for, for uh, Fellowship? I mean, probably something from the list that I sent you originally that ended up getting cut. <laughs> oh, that's right. We, we talked about it in that first half. Well, I, I'll, yeah, I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll look at that and, and, and make the official decision later, weeks later, when I count up the ballots. But for now... I'll say probably Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors? Okay. Okay. Fair enough. But uh, let's talk about Lord of the Rings, the trilogy. Yes. Because, hey, so, I, 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 see, I see your point of view, and... It, I was I was there with you 100 percent of it of, of mm-hmm. it counting as one movie, as the trilogy, but now having talked about it so much, I have to bring up Going Home Steep, the Lord of the Rings podcast I did a few months mm-hmm. ago. My sister listens to that. Oh oh, uh, 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 thank thank your sister for the for the listenership. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I just see them as three now, like they're they're three separate entries. But talk to me about. The, your your appreciation for the, the the Lord of the Rings trilogy as a whole. I mean, honestly speaking, I think the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the most impressive cinematic achievement of my lifetime, easily. Yeah, because the risk going in was so great. Like, what was the last high fantasy movie? that succeeded on any level in people's minds. There's nothing. There was nothing no. on the to the degree that Lord of the Rings needed to succeed to justify making two more and they went in and they started by filming all three at the same time. And like as a thought experiment, I just sometimes like to think, okay, say fellowship had been Mortal Engines level financial bomb. Yeah, You know, we're talking $20 million on a hundred whatever million dollar budget. What would they have done with the Two Towers and Return of the King? Because they were technically finished filming, but they still had a lot to do. They still had to do all of the CG work, and that's not cheap. Would they have condensed them into one movie? Would they... I just I, yeah. I can't picture what that would be. Do, do you know what I mean? I, I, it's funny that you bring that up. I don't think we ever had that conversation on Going Home Steep on that podcast. But thinking about it now, I I, I think they would have they would have said, you know what? Let's just do one movie. Let's just do instead of the instead of Two Towers and Return of the King. Let's just do a Return of the King and just condense everything into that movie. So yeah, it it, it yeah I I agree with you that it's. Something so special, once in a lifetime thing, and they pulled it off, and I'm still shocked that they pulled it off, and I'm still shocked that it made all that money and all that acclaim, rightfully so, and that people yeah. said, "Yes, here's your, here's, and here's all your Oscars, Peter Jackson, you earned it," and I'm like, "Yes, this never happens." To trust motherfucking Peter Jackson with this, like, <laughs> yeah. like he didn't make Dead Alive and the Frighteners, <laughs> like, I, I don't know, I just. Again, I'm speaking solely business right now just because it is so baffling to me that they decided to do this because there's absolutely no reason it should have worked. How many franchises have we seen come out and be like, yeah, can't wait for part two, and then there's never a part two because people don't go see the first one. And, like, 
Lord of the Rings didn't have the cultural cachet that it had back in the 70s. It didn't have the cultural cachet that it has now. It was a thing that nerds liked. But I don't know. I just, I cannot wrap my head around being like, yeah, let's do this. Let's go all in. And then just from a production standpoint, you know, there is a reason the special features on those DVDs and Blu-rays are so beloved. And it's not just because they took so much care in them. It's because the making of this movie specifically was such an achievement. It was so effortful and so creative. And that's a very difficult book to adapt into a film. And I think that they did a marvelous job knowing what to change, knowing what to cut. I think we are currently in an era where book adaptations are way too scared and way too faithful. I think the Harry Potters have ruined book adaptations, personally. Yeah. Um, I don't think any Harry Potter movie works because it is so deliberately like faithful to the structure of the book when what they should really do is try and follow the tone and then throw everything else out but that's what lord of the rings did it said okay here's here's tolkien's language here are tolkien's themes here is and jackson he gets away from it a little you know his his action movie love takes us a little away from the the lyricism and the pastoral nature of the books a little bit because I think he just, he likes action more than Tolkien, who actually went to warp, did. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but even still, those movies are just so emotional. And again, to have an emotional moment with characters that are hobbits and named Frodo and Bilbo and Sam, like, that's so impressive to me. I don't know. I did, the fact that they pulled this off, I just cannot believe it and i highly recommend if you do watch them as discrete films i once every five years i watch lord of the rings that's my that's what i do so once every five years i set aside a day i call in sick from work and i put 13 hours into watching all three extended editions back to back to back because i think the weight of time and the exhaustion of travel is such an integral part of that story that by the end I want to feel that along with the characters and so I can't break this up into nights I can't break this up into oh I'll watch part one now I'll watch part two now no this is they're going on a journey and so when I'm watching Fellowship and I'm seeing them leave the Shire for the first time I'm feeling the weight of that decision because that's what I'm doing for the next 13 hours of my life um so I don't know. I, I highly recommend it, uh, that that version of engaging with them. Uh, yeah, I I uh, recently saw Return of the King in a the theater. It was my first time back in theaters mm. um, mm-hmm. uh, post um, vaccinated, and uh, watching. Okay, watching it was an experience. I wrote about it. It was important to me. Yada yada yada. But I kind of felt like I was just watching the third act of a long movie. Because I, mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. Like next time I watch these movies, I am going to watch them. Hopefully, you know the draft has here in Austin. They, they, they do. I think every November they do 
the extended edition marathon of all three movies and they do like a feast mm. where they yeah. have like yeah these like multiple courses throughout the entire films these especially the special menu that they give you and i want to go to that this year i have not i've never done that and i've always wanted to go and i'm like all right this year i'm gonna make sure to get tickets to this because that is the way i want to experience it i'm with you jacob it i next time i see those movies i do want to see them you know over however many hours so um it it, to me it is a complete experience it is kind of weird seeing just one of them you know without without having seen the other one so yeah um again but i'm not changing my rule this uh, this time around they're they're still going to be counted as three movies real quick what do you think about the hobbit movies uh i saw the first one and i thought all right if they get better from here this will have been worth it and then I saw the second one, and it was worse. And so I said, I'm done. And then I never saw the third one. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, well I, I, I'll just say, um, just just give it, give them another shot. Uh, eh. Eh, uh, don't, you know, but I'm not rushing you. I'm not saying do it right away. But eventually, maybe give them another shot. Because uh, uh, me having re- revisited them recently, I'm like, okay, they're not. They're still not great, but they they still have some worth. There's still some some good in there. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I, I liked that Martin. I mean, it's so clearly meant to be two movies, and the first movie was so clearly meant to be its own thing because like Martin Freeman's Bilbo has a pretty nice arc in that first movie, and like that movie has a lot of bloat and does not need to do most of what it's doing, but like. Oh, Bilbo is now accepted by the you know the dwarves, and he's a member of the company, and he's shown some bravery, and like, like yeah, that's a great ending point for Bilbo, who is the character that we should give a shit about. And then that second movie, and like, I don't know, Bilbo doesn't do diddly shit that whole time, <laughs> and it's like, all right, I'm I'm done. No more, no more hobbits for me. Fair, fair enough. But imagine if another director had directed those maybe they would have been different imagine if Guillermo del Toro directed the Hobbit trilogy oh. but you know what he, what he directed instead Crimson Peak um, well not instead you know just later on yeah. I, I forget the timeline um, <laughs> he directed Pacific Rim instead Pacific Rim instead that's a hell of a thing um, yeah but let's talk about Crimson Peak because that's on your list. Crimson Peak yes. in 2015. Um, I believe I just talked with Sarah Sorrentino in the last episode or one of the last episodes. And she yep. had this uh, on her list as well. Um, if you ask me, this is up there for me. It's going to be hard for me to pick a Dotoro movie. Um, I'm assuming you've seen most of Dotoro's work, right, Jacob? I've seen his entire filmography. Yeah. Uh, but talk to me about this decision of uh, putting Crimson Peak above the others. Yeah, so even more so, like I said this about Altman, but I feel this way more with Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro's work as a director is more interesting to me as a whole unit, as different facets of a man's interests than they are as discrete pieces. Like, I love Pan's Labyrinth. But I love Pan's Labyrinth way more watching it back to back with Blade 2 and knowing that those are the same guy. <laughs> yeah. And, and like Hellboy 2 and The Devil's Backbone. Again, it's just... I, I love his work, but there's no... Each one of his movies, I tend to be like, ooh, I love this, but I do miss this thing about him because he can't do everything that he does in every movie that he does. 
So like I watch Hellboy too, and I'm like, mm, I miss a little of the lyricism of the Spanish language stuff. And then I watch, you know, The Devil's Backbone. I'm like, mm, but this doesn't have eighty thousand monsters in it the way that <laughs> Pacific Rim or Hellboy two is. Uh, but I think he is maybe not at the height of his powers, but he is coming from the most distinct perspective, I think, for Crimson Peak. And Crimson Peak just takes takes the lead over everything else, partially just because I am a giant gothic romance fan. And Wuthering Heights is my favorite book. So Guillermo del Toro doing Wuthering Heights, but with a little more ghost action, is so going to be up my alley. And the sheer just again this is another one where it's just the sheer craft on display is just absolutely stunning you know this movie just to look at it to see the you know the blood clay dripping down the walls of this house to see del toro's love of symbolism but symbolism that doesn't necessarily have a decoding it's more symbolism for the sake of creating a symbology for you to read into. I love that about it. And I love that it's sexy and it's dark and it's in no way really a horror film. And it's very proud of that. And I just, I love the relationships between, I mean, every, all the actors are just doing a, a, an amazing job, I think. This is the best use of Tom Hiddleston any movie's had. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's fine as Loki, but, like, Crimson Peak is like, oh, you have found both the appeal and the danger of who this guy is. And, yeah, uh, I think it's just that it's a big gothic romance set in a crumbling, beautiful house that he built that makes me love Crimson Peak more than everything else. Uh, it's... It's a beautiful film. Um, I love it. Um, I mean, it has my favorite actress in it, Jessica Chastain. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, it's it's one of those that I'm going to keep going back to and just love even more every time I watch it. And I, I'll admit, like, I have more of, a fin uh, more of an affinity for like, even, like, Hellboy 2 and, of course, like, Pan's Labyrinth. But... I just seem to always go back to Crimson Peak. I have very fond memories of seeing that in a the theater and just saying, hey. I was like, because like that, it, that, I went opening weekend, nobody was in a the theater. Because I, 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 I don't think it did well in the box office. Not well as it should have anyway. But yeah. I'm like, God, what, what's going on here? I didn't say it out loud, just in my head. It's like, why isn't everybody here watching this right now with me? Um, well, <laughs> I don't know. One of the things that I love about it is that it's very much a movie that he got signed, I guess, because it's like, they're like, Caramel del Toro making a ghost movie, sure. And then he made a movie, I think, with absolutely no commercial appeal, which yeah. is what makes me love it so much. Like, yeah. I love when someone takes such a distinct perspective on a topic and such a, you know, I am going to make an 18th, a 19th century gothic romance in exactly the way that those novels were written. And fuck you if that's not what you want to see when you go out. Yeah, I, I love I that. I got made fun of in the theater when I saw it because I asked a group of women who kept talking during it to please be quiet. And the, she turns around and one of her, the friend leans over and goes, what did he say? And she goes, oh, this guy wants to watch the movie. I'm like, yeah, I paid $12 to be here. What do you want from me? Like, We're in a movie theater. What do you expect? 
that's that's my main memory of uh, seeing Crimson Peak in theaters, which is a shame. But um, since, should... since it came out on Blu-ray, I've had a better relationship with it. I mean, speaking of Blu-ray, that do you have that Arrow release of Crimson Peak? That's that's a beautiful uh, set. Mm, I I do not. I I, I have the uh, the initial release. It, it just hasn't seemed worth it to upgrade yet. Yeah, I I, I mostly got it for the packaging. To be honest, yeah. I, I, I think I don't even think it's a remaster of the or nope. of the uh, no, it's not right. But no, that, there's a few extra features, but that's it. Yeah, but that that box is sexy. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's nice. Um, regardless, uh, great movie. Um, yeah. Can okay, I recommend a link? Let's let let's go. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so you know we we ended talking about Crimson Peak about my love of when a creator has a such a distinct perspective and wants to dive in on a topic that they care about specifically and i have to connect that with my love of my favorite lonely island creation the unauthorized bash brothers experience (laughs) because a lot of fucking nerds are gonna put pop star on their list but like pop star is like I don't know. That's a ground ball level satirical, you know, topic to take. But to make a visual tone poem inspired by Lemonade based on the 1990s baseball steroid scandal, that's my jam, man. <laughs> like, that is so specific. That's all I want out of my creators. I want them to have a specific point of view on specific topics and then let me into their world. And that's what The Lonely Island did with the unauthorized Bash Brother experience. Now, you're talking to a a massive Lonely Island guy, Jacob. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I love everything they've done up to a Same. point. Up to a point because yep. I have not experienced this film or this or the soundtrack to it yet. What I, I know it's I, I don't know why. Like I, I I tried watching some of it, but for whatever reason I didn't finish. I haven't I didn't listen to the soundtrack, and I just don't know why. It and I know it's great. I know it is. People have said it's great, but for some reason I couldn't get into it when I when I did. So I'm gonna have to you know watch this and listen to the soundtrack soon because i believe you and i love again i'll say this again i love lonely island i love them to death i love um uh you know pop star you say is very obvious pick but i love pop star even like mcgruber which was directed by uh, at least one or two of the boys i forget who yeah yorma Uh, yeah yorma um everything they touch seems to be made for me so Mm -hmm. the fact that i have not experience this to its fullest effect you know it's it's odd i'll just say so um no i will because it's on netflix isn't it yep it it is a netflix original and my inclusion of it as a movie is maybe generous too (laughs) it's fine i think it's like 38 minutes but uh, it's i have no qualms so perfect yeah it counts hey somebody put uh we just had that whole thing about lord of the rings but somebody put twin peak season three on their list and i'm like yeah it's fine <laughs> so <laughs> i should not uh i should not be running a website and making rules um but no this will count and yeah i don't know who else is going to vote for it jacob you might be the sole person who's who's gonna have uh the 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 unauthorized uh bash brothers experience on their list so and I'm we'll proud see. of that. <laughs> I cool. love to stand alone. I think I'm going to have quite a few picks on this list that I might be standing alone on. I don't know. Break into Electric Boogaloo might make the top ten. Maybe. It, it fucking better. 
But one that I have seen that I love uh, dearly, I have very, very good memories of for very personal reasons, actually. One you just mentioned, Lemonade from 2016, um, directed by Beyonce and others. Um, Boy, let me just tell this quick story. So Yeah, tell me. um, Lemonade came out. And this is why it's so personal to me. Came out a few months after a big breakup of mine. Um, devastating. Uh, but it just came on HBO, and like I saw people on Twitter were talking about. It. I'm like, oh, Lemonade. I'll watch it. I guess. I was just like stunned. I was like, this is incredible. It seemed to speak to me in a way, and visually, this uh, was. Uh, it, it 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 was like something I hadn't seen or experienced before in that way. Like mm-hmm. something that felt. Because it was just on HBO for like a few days, uh, and it was just a big surprise to everybody because it was like one of those Beyonce surprise drops. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I just lived it for the next few months. I was just like listening to the soundtrack over and over, watching it over and over. So yes, this is very dear to me. I even think I made like a special award uh, for the Talk From Society Awards and gave it to Beyonce for this the year it came out. So uh, I love this thing. Jacob. I, talk, talk to me about Lemonade and your experience with it. I think this is the greatest film of the 2010s. And earlier I quoted Robert Altman in saying that there's never been a great film. And I think that Robert Altman only said that because he died before Lemonade came out. <laughs> because if we take the idea that cinema, we, there's never been a great film because cinema is so indebted to the novel and the stage and nobody has tapped into something that is distinctly film-like... Lemonade succeeds in that goal. There is elements of poetry, but there is elements of... It is, as it says on the tin, it is a tone poem in visual form. And it is so densely layered. And it is so powerfully embedded with symbols that both can be decoded and can't be decoded. And it is reflective of both personal experience and then also national experience and also global experience and the experience specifically of black women and it is all reflected into this prism of the idea of celebrity and how we think we know the story but we can't really know the story and how much of Beyonce is putting herself out to be consumed and how much of this is Beyonce allowing us to think that she has put herself out there to be consumed? And I'm always going to be fascinated by those... The idea of authenticity and verisimilitude in media is something that is constantly fascinating to me. It's what I'm interested in about watching The Bachelor. It's why I think um, Nathan For You's Finding Francis is maybe the greatest piece of media criticism of the 21st century. Oh, yes. The way that it peels back layers, but it also is creating new layers by creating the idea and the image that we have peeled back a layer makes us feel more emotionally close to the material while at the same time actively distancing us from what is the actual truth because there can be no truth that is filmed the act of filming destroys truth and creators have to find ways to bridge that and then also build that out at the same time and i think that's something that beyonce does just incredibly well here and also there's just like 
a fucking banger of a country song halfway through. Yeah. And that's awesome. Um, Lemonade, I'm just... I am in awe of Lemonade, both as a visual experience and as a metaphoric experience and as a referential and reverential experience. And then you also have this emotional catharsis with it. Like, by the time that freedom kicks in, you are so wrapped into this. And that's to be working on every cylinder like that is something that almost no one can do to to balance the intellectual, the emotional, the aesthetic all at the same time. That is a juggling act that is nearly impossible. And it's something that Lemonade does better than I think anybody else. I appreciate that you made the connection to Finding Francis, which, by the way, will make my top 25. That's one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, and I love that, like, it's even, like, even, like, uh, uh, how long is Lemonade? Like, fifth, like, an hour? about yeah right yeah i mean it, it's it, it counts i'm counting it it's longer than lemonade definitely yeah but yeah but F- finding francis um no i was asking how long lemonade is it's like it's about an hour and then finding francis is almost yeah. feature length like maybe 70 minutes yeah. yeah but i love that yeah they're connected in that way about speaking about i guess media and how it's presented and how an artist interprets it for an audience um, mm-hmm. And I love also, separate from that, just how, like, Lemonade is like a visual album. That's like, technically what it is, right? Um, mm-hmm. And Finding Francis is like the season finale of, like, a TV show. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I love how, like, we're, like, smart, yeah, I was going to say smart people. Yes, we are smart people. Like, people don't necessarily find greatness in just movies as defined by people who who are saying, oh, this is a movie, this is a movie. I can totally see the the worth of, like, Lemonade or Finding Francis, you know, beyond. Or even, like, hey, I, 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 I totally believe you about Bash Brothers, too. And that's, like, shorter than a feature film, right? Mm-hmm. So I love that, like, we're just... Get, we're, we're, referencing the, we're referencing these things that are not necessarily movies, but to us, I think they say a lot more than what real movies, some of them do anyway so anyway this is my tangent of like how i guess how the media landscape has changed over the last 10 years i'm gonna it's gonna be interesting to see because i've been doing this tfs 100 thing uh like almost like once every like three or four years so i'm gonna i'm I'm gonna keep tabs on like what's like like lemonade maybe will will will, will be there. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think Finding Francis will be on there. But uh, I don't know. Just, just d- these things we don't necessarily think are movies are just going to pop up on there, and I, I find that great. So yeah, yeah. It, it's all make believe goof em ups. So like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Just fucking let us say whatever we want. <laughs> <laughs> but I will not count Lord of the Rings as one movie. I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. <laughs> we have three more. Here we go. Let's go with. A- hey, it's a movie I had not seen. Down with Love from 2003. Oh uh, man, I know, I, I know, I need to see it. I know, but uh, it's... I mean, from the director of Ant Man and Bring It On, Peyton Reed. Uh, so I mean, I love both of those movies. So I'm sure I'll love with Down with Love. So I I used to catch a lot of flack because when Peyton Reed replaced Edgar Wright on Ant Man. I was the only one out there in the streets, and I stand by this when I say, Down With Love 
and you're going to disagree with this, Marcelo. Mm. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Down with Love is better than anything Edgar Wright's ever directed. Okay. Sorry, but it's well, true. I, um, I, I haven't seen it, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it's a love letter to the Doris Day, Rock Hudson era, pillow talk style, um, you know, romantic comedies. It is done both in that visual style it is not a satire of them or a pastiche of them, but a loving recreation. And I think that that's the boldest move they could have made. I think it is very easy to poke fun at an older genre of film or an older style of filmmaking. But what Peyton Reed does is lovingly recreate it and bring back, honestly, what is missing from a lot of modern film. And what it brings new with it is nothing aesthetic, it's nothing tonal, but it is a feminist lens and perspective that is definitely present in the older films, but is highlighted and catered to in a new way with this film. Um, It's hilarious, it's beautifully shot, it's blocked, which is something that I get on my high horse a lot. Uh, a lot of movies nowadays, I feel, do not have good blocking and are, are not blocked well. So many movies are decide to create scenes solely in editing instead of letting actors moving their bodies around create the energy that you'd want. Um, there's an amazing split-screen phone conversation where they're both working out and on the phone And the split screen is moving to keep them both in frame as they're doing different things. And every time they get into a new position, it looks like they're having sex. (laughs) So it's like he's doing push-ups on the top half of the screen and she is like doing back stretches on the bottom half of the screen. And the split screen is like just barely connecting their genitals. (laughs) Um, That's great. It's got that 60s style... I'm lying about who I am so you don't know but we're falling in love but then it takes that concept and it flips it on its head there is a twist reveal in the movie that is revealed through what is I want to say a four minute unbroken monologue that Renee Zellweger gives directly into camera with no cuts and that's just such a great move and it changes the energy of the back half of the film and it it has such a it delivers such a great message in that it is saying that men and women need to be on equal footing politically socially financially in order for love to not be something that is coercive or and it's not kind of the empty rah-rah feminism that like, I don't know, like a a modern action movie will give you where they're just like I'm not like other girls and then they do a split kick in leather pants or something like that. It is it's so carefully constructed and so funny and David Hyde Pierce and Sarah Paulson are in it as the like secondary leads and they are just absolutely hilarious and I just... I fucking love David Hyde Pierce. I want to throw that out there. Anytime he shows up in anything, he's always great. Um, So Down With Love. Yes, it's definitely Peyton Reed's best film, and it's one of the best rom-coms ever made. There you go. Um, Again, I talked to Manish a few episodes ago, 
And like every time, I mean, th- there's been plenty on, on your list, Jacob, so I'm not talking to you, but you know, I love that uh, there are romantic comedies and comedies on people's lists. And for those who don't have romantic comedies or comedies on their list and turn their nose up at them, I don't know what you're doing with your life. You're not enjoying life, it seems like. so. Fall uh, in love, people. Yeah. <laughs> fall in love. Have a laugh. <laughs> love is great, man. Yeah. And I love, yeah. man, r- movies with some heat and some romance, are they are underrated and undermade. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, hey, a, a movie that uh, doesn't really have love and is kind of confusing, maybe, to people who try to decode it. I may have written about this before. Uh, a Serious Man from 2009 yes. <laughs> by the Coens. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God, indeed. So, uh, l- let me just say real quick, it's going to be tough for me picking a Coen Brothers movie because my my easy choice would be on my list, like, Inside Lewin Davis, but mm-hmm. I could easily go, like, No Country or even Brafter Reading or A Serious Man because... I don't know. I I guess I'm just a huge fan of like later era Coens and like a serious man still knocks me out. It's it's incredible work. Uh, Jacob, talk about a serious man. I mean, I so a serious man is the movie on this list that I've seen the least. I watched it once and added it to this list because I had a virtually a spiritual reaction to watching it, um, and then I watched it again to prepare for this episode just because I. I've wanted to be able to have this reading on it. And I think that it is the most exemplary of what the Coen brothers are constantly approaching and trying to say in their career. And this is a movie that is built around the concept of there's, there's the phrase that um, the, the father of the, of the cheating suit says to him and it's embrace the mystery. Yeah. And that is a recurring theme in the Coen brothers work is that life maybe not meaningless but to try for us to try and be able to derive meaning from it to for us to be able to pull what the meaning of things are out of life as we experience it is a fool's errand and a game that we are always going to lose and that's something that you know that comes up in a very literal, funny way in something like Burn After Reading, where the movie ends and they're like, what the hell was this all about? And everybody just shrugs their shoulders because <laughs> you can't make sense of it because it was pointless. There was there was no reason for any of it to have happened. And A Serious Man takes that both on a thematic level and then just makes it so... I think this is the funniest movie that they've ever done. And it's so emotionally I don't even want to say devastating you just you find yourself so enraptured by it the um the sequence of rabbis who he goes to speak to and the second rabbi's story about the the goy in his teeth and for it to build and build and build and then have absolutely no punchline or <laughs> point or resolution and for that to be exemplary of the movie itself, I think that's fantastic. The moment I knew that I loved a serious man is when 
again the cheating father is um is the the cheating student's father is talking to you know our main character and he is trying to get his son out of trouble because his son offered him a bribe to ignore the fact that he was cheating on an essay on a um on a test about schrodinger and schrodinger's cat and as they talk the conversation turns to being about the bribe and like how the bribe either exists or it doesn't. It can't exist in a state where it both exists and doesn't because that's what the father's trying to say to get the better side of both ends. And how that reflects onto the Schrodinger's cat point that they were talking about in the classroom and testing on. The moment I made that connection, like halfway through that scene, I was just like, oh, this is, this is great. They are so in control of this narrative. They are so paying off things already and I'm only like 45 minutes in I know that for the rest of this movie I am in good hands and this is one of the ones I I keep going back to Altman because he's one of my faves but like you come out of this movie and you go okay well what did this specifically mean and there's I don't know I can't say what does the tornado at the end of the film represent I don't have a firm answer for you I can tell you how it makes me feel but that's something that is a relationship that I'm having with it. There's a Roger Ebert quote that I love. I think it's on the Dark City Blu-ray <laughs> where he talks about, you know, the director makes a film and that's one thing. And then you as an audience member, you bring your entire life into that theater. And as you watch the movie, you interpret it as according to your own life. And what is happening then is that there's a new third thing created that is a blending of both the director's mind and your mind. And that is the movie that you know and the movie that you love. And I think a serious man has the gaps where I can bring myself to it in a way that other films don't. And so I feel so enraptured and enveloped in this new third film that the Coens created and gave to me to then bring into my life. And I think that's why it's my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Oh, well put. Um, Because like, yeah, I (laughs) I wrote an article a few years ago. I forget why. Mm -hmm. I forget uh, if it was like for a Coen Brothers series. But um, like, I I sat down because I had been thinking about um, a serious man for years, right? Mm-hmm. And in that article, I wrote this. I wasn't trying to like solve the mystery because like that's fruitless. I was just basically c- kind of like what you're saying before, Jacob. Like this is like kind of what they've been doing since they started with like Blood Simple, like and through like Fargo, uh, even like Big Lebowski, and then for sure by the time No Country came out, and I've said this story before, but I say it again. When No Country came out. I have a distinct. I have two distinct memories of that movie of it of it coming out. I watched it opening weekend uh, in a packed theater. As we're walking out after that ending, when Tommy Lee Jones goes, "I had a dream. I woke up. That's it. That's it. That's the that's the movie." Mm-hmm. Um, we were all walking out. I heard somebody uh, in the front row say, "That's bullshit." <laughs> and like, okay, <laughs> great. He didn't like it, or he didn't like the ending. Then second memory I have was talking to a boss of mine um, about No Country when it came out. Him him saying, you know what? I didn't like the ending. And he goes, I didn't like the movie because the ending just didn't make sense. And then mm-hmm. I, ta- I talked him into seeing it again after 
I kind of went into like how I interpreted the ending. I go, listen, it's not about Josh Brolin's character. It's about just Tom Lee Jones accepting or just trying to accept the fact that death is inevitable. Like that's that's a kind of in a nutshell. That's what the movie's about. I, and this is me just trying to rationalize with a guy who just didn't know much about movies in general. Like talking about this, I was like, listen, this is why I like it. This is why maybe you should give it another chance. He saw it again. He ended up liking it more. And like that's like the one of the best things we've ever done is convincing someone to see a movie again and then you know saying oh it was great because of you. Um, mm-hmm. Then having said all that, I think a serious man is kind of like a you know a, 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 like to the audience who did not like the ending of No Country or even after reading who were just like kind of like confused like what that's it that's the ending. Coen Brothers was very devilishly were like let's make a movie just about that. It's about you know these these you know these tales these uh, these stories we tell that really just are are not meant to be solved. Let's just make a movie just about that. And I find that absolutely brilliant of them. Like this, you know, I may be talking myself into putting this above anything else they've done because it is it it is very much just them smartly saying you want to know what what we do. Here's what we do. We tell you nothing, <laughs> and you're gonna love it. <laughs> So yeah, so that's why I love Serious Man. That's why yeah. the Coens are amazing. That's why, um, yeah, movies are great. And we, we yeah. and that whole Ebert thing you said, bringing our own selves into it, that definitely helps a lot with my love of the Coens because I think uh, their worldview kind of blends in with mine, which is mm-hmm. kind of frightening. So, <laughs> <laughs> also, Cy Abelman memes are the best part of the internet. I, I love yeah. every Cy Abelman meme. <laughs> Like every every meme that says you won't believe what special guest star is coming up on the new Marvel show, and you have Cy Abelman. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I was also very sneaky, Jacob. I I wanted to end with this one. Um, yeah. Because why not? It's uh, as of this recording. Uh, I'm all hyped up on this franchise because I just finished my my entire rewatch and I just watched the new one in theaters. I am so jealous. Uh, let's talk about. Fast Five from 2011, directed by Justin Lin. Uh, oh boy! So we're gonna spend the next hour talking about the Fast movies, aren't we? No, no. I- <laughs> <laughs> we could, but we're only gonna be talking about Fast Five. Um, I'll just quickly say, and then I'll leave it to you, Jacob, because this is your show. You're, you're the guest. I love these movies. I recently watched um, two, three, four, five in a theater because the the, uh, the AMC mm-hmm. next to me did their like Fast Fridays, um, and I had to see those. And I was okay missing the other ones, but seeing Fast Five again, it was clear evidence to me that, and then this was made even more clear after seeing F Nine. I think this is the best franchise, period, right now. Yeah, yeah. Yep. it. I, I, I'm, uh, no question. No question, because, dear God, them accomplishing what they accomplished in their fifth movie, how they how they pulled it off, I'm still so happy and just so in shock. And what they do with the with the subsequent movies, yeah, I won't spoil F9, Jacob, but like even in F9, they're doing the right things. That at least for me as a Fast and Furious fan. It still works, and I'm like, after after nine movies, I go, you know what? 
Better than Star Wars. Period. This th- there's no, no there's not no even question. a question. <laughs> no question. So there are pound for pound more great Fast and Furious movies than there are Star Wars movies. Yeah, and if it's you th- true. There's like you- four good Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I also want to say, and then I'll toss it to you. Then I'll shut up forever. But I love that each and every one of the Fast and Furious movies. Maybe not Hobbs and Shaw. The, the, the main saga, anyway, they're essential. You To appreciate Fast Five fully, you really have to watch those first four and kind of love them to some degree. Because if you do, if you watch five, six, seven, uh, even eight and nine, you'll, get, you'll appreciate this more. You'll appreciate these characters, these stories more if you go back and watch the other ones. Mm-hmm. You can't say the same for like any other franchise, really. Like you can nope. watch the the sequel trilogy for Star Wars and the original trilogy, and you go, "That's enough. I don't need to see the prequels. They're not essential." Uh, James Bond, forget about it. Just watch the Daniel Craig ones. You don't need to watch the other ones. Fast Five, yeah. You, it's it's a ride or die franchise. You're either in it all the way <laughs> or you're not in it at all. So Jacob, take it away. I'm going to shut. I now. have long said that Fast Five is so good. It retroactively makes the first four good. Yes, I've been. I've, I've also been saying that for years, Jacob. Thank you. <laughs> because so I, I just, before I get too far into this, and I think Fast Five is a legitimate pop art masterpiece that takes audience expectation, takes real world context, and uses that to boost up its own presence and its own existence in an interesting way. And I think that given what we think of The Rock now, we forget about that. But I'm going to get to that in a second. So my first time seeing Fast Five, I was in college when Fast and Furious, the fourth film, which is sadly not called Fast Forward, um, (laughs) came out. And I remember seeing the trailer and the advertising for that movie was so heavily dependent on, hey, this is is the real deal. We got everybody back. Can you fucking believe it? And I got really amped up by that trailer, but then never saw the movie, which is honestly good because I think Fast 4 is probably the worst one of the franchise. Yep. <laughs> yep. But so and then Fast 5 comes out and the trailers for it are so bonkers. I'm like, you know, maybe this is the time I get into this. Uh, I, I was a senior in college and... So I was like, you know what? All right, uh, the, these are on Netflix. So I watched The Fast and the Furious, and it was it's it's fine. It's a, a fine film. Um, personally, it's not something I would have revisited had the Fast and Furious franchise not existed the way that it does. Um, I think I just growing up in the 2001 era and like going to high school in like a you know rural area with a bunch of like shitty idiots. Who <laughs> loved these movies and were like douchebags about it. But that's that's neither here nor there. So I, I watched the first one, and then the day I graduated college, I went from my graduation ceremony in my cap and gown, got into the car with my mom and sister, we drove to the movie theater, and we watched Fast Five together. <laughs> wow. And because we had we had we had a day to kill before we drove home. And when I tell you that moment changed my life, I am being 100% sincere. (laughs) So I only had the context of the first film, but I'm a comic book fan and I grew up in the days before 
DV- TV on DVD. And so for me, I there's nothing I love more than jumping in the middle of a story. I love watching a sequel before seeing the movies that come before it. I love building those narratives in my head. And Fast Five is just such a perfect gem of pop filmmaking. Because it plays with the weight that these characters have for people who care about this franchise. But if you don't, it insists upon their greatness and their weight in a way that even their films don't. When Roman and Tej show up, when Han shows up, when... Like, Giselle has no real role in part four, but she's so good in part five. Yeah. (laughs) And like... The introduction of The Rock. Now, again, like I was saying before, I think because of The Rock's career now, we forget The Rock wasn't really in a great place going into Fast Five. He was not the box office juggernaut he is now. He was still very much trying to establish himself as the action star for the new generation, the new millennium. And... What this movie does is pit him against somebody who is the visual representation of the action star of the last decade. Because it had been 10 years between the first Fast and Furious and Fast Five. And so Vin is now going up against this guy who is trying to position himself as the face of action moving forward. So when they have their fir- their like face-off and their fist fight in the garage... You have not just these characters who have been building up to seeing each other, but you have this like generalized weight of expectation as these two tight these two slabs of meat just bounce off of each other. <laughs> and then when they have their erotic forearm grabbing moment because the rock's being blown up, the rock's entire team's been blown up and Vin came to save him, like that is a stand out of your chair and cheer moment and the safe chase is just where the franchise has gone since in that every action scene has to top the safe chase (laughs) is a beautiful but b makes you forget how perfectly executed and how insane that safe chase feels at the end of that movie it feels wild and dangerous and unlike anything you've ever seen before and Vin starts using it as an offensive weapon, and that's just an amazing tool and tactic. And one of the things that I think... So everything from Fast Five, I think, is great. From Fast Five on, I have rated no Fast and Furious movie less than five stars after Fast <laughs> Five came out. It's five, six, seven, and eight are all five-star movies in my eyes. Well, that was it. Um, well, sincerely, thank you. Jacob, this was fun. Um, this was great. Talking about your top 25 of all time. Um, before we go, let's talk about the Fast and Furious movie some more. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> let's go to plugs. Where can people listening find you online? 
Uh, so if you enjoy listening to me talk about movies, and if you particularly enjoyed listening to me talk about Frankenstein, uh, I host a podcast on the Talk Film Society Network called Monsters Never Die, along with Matt Kirion. And in that, we talk about famous movie monsters and then all of their sequels, remakes, ripoffs, reimaginings. Um, we're currently in the middle of a three-part Godzilla series. Um, we've done the Showa era and the Heisei era, and we just have millennium and then the american films to go um but we usually don't break things up quite that long we we uh we did all the creature from the black lagoon ripoffs and all the invisible man ripoffs and it's been it's a great time uh, and then on twitter i'm jacob underscore denoble that's d-e-n-o-b-e-l and that's also where you can find me on letterboxd and that's it for me there you go check all that out folks uh, jacob is a good guy yeah yeah um and if you made it this far into the episode like three hours in uh i'm sure you you have to like the guy um <laughs> <laughs> so th- uh, thank you again jacob and thank you for listening listeners and here's ross say the, the the thing i say at the end of every show hey see you at the movies no i never say that all right bye <laughs>